Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And Bernadine Sung Megason with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, after mountains of speculation around whether Tom Brady will keep his incredible 22-year NFL career going, the former Patriot is officially calling it quits through an announcement this morning on social media. We'll kick off the show by getting your reactions to the news and Marjorie's reactions to his dating history, his hair transplant, and more. Then we'll keep the sports talk going with NBC's Boston Sports. Trini Kusnerik, she'll of course talk about Brady's retirement, not so much his dating life, Beijing's ultra-strict COVID restrictions ahead of the Olympics, and the record-breaking comeback of tennis champion Rafael Nadal. Those conversations and more all to come on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. And you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So during one of the biggest snowstorms in Boston history, only one story would ever be big enough to break through the in-the-field cable news coverage. Reporters trudged through two feet of snow, shoving microphones in faces only to ask, what are you making the news about Tom Brady? Well, for a few days, Brady and his family have tried to hold off the rumors of his retirement. But this morning, word came down, as you just heard on the news, on his own Instagram account in this lengthy post. He thanked just about everyone except the team he spent the vast majority of his career with. The Patriots said, the lines are open. What do you make of Brady's decision after 22 seasons and seven Super Bowl titles? 877-301-8970. You can email us, BPR, at uh, WGBH.org or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. Let me just tell you something. What's that, Jim? Russia better not invade Ukraine today because we're never going to hear about it. <laughs> this is no. – we're watching in our studio. We have uh, – I think it's NECN and CNN mm. on our two monitors – how long was it when both screens had nothing but Brady, including CNN, National? 15 it, minutes, 20 yeah, minutes, 25 minutes? It seemed minutes? like that. It was like forever. Oh, my They went God. through at least two or three commercial breaks. We came back, and it was still Tom Brady. <laughs> what do you make? By the way, let me just tell you this. I'm, we weren't exaggerating here, nor was uh, Marilyn. He thanks the Bucks fans, the city of Tampa, right. his teammates, his coach. The, the owners, his the coach, the general manager, mm-hmm. And essentially the janitors. I mean, every single Bucks staffer and employee never, yep. never his agent, mentions the Patriots, Kraft, any Yeah, there's no stuff. Robert Kraft. He, he thanks the guy that was was Alex Guerrero, the guy that was his doing guru, all those. His guru, yeah. His guru thanks him. A little of course. And, of course, guy. lastly, he thanks his wonderful wife, Giselle, mm-hmm. and his children, Jack, Benny, and Vivi. Calls them their inspiration. Jack Benny's his son? No. The, the, oh, Jack the, and <laughs> I thought Jack Benny was dead. That was incredible. If it was his son, no, he says his family is his greatest achievement. And then it he is. ends, and then he ends, yeah, uh, with this lovely ode to his wife, which we, I don't really understand. But did you might speak a little Portuguese? He says, I, I speak French. I maybe can speak a little Portuguese. Yeah, te amo amor de minha vida. Say it slower. Say it one more time. Oh, I'm butchering. Well, just do no it the doubt. best you can. So te amo, yeah. amor, amor da minha vida. Oh, I do have it. It means F.U. Bill Belichick. That's what it... 
I believe that's the technical <laughs> de- uh, uh, translation. 877-301-89. Yep. Obviously, it means I you know, love you, whatever the, the hell it is. Here's yeah. the thing. I mean, I mean, you have the greatest quarterback of all time, Ever. right? Yeah. Married to the greatest supermodel of, of recent Ever, years. yes. Uh, you know, they have Giselle Bunchen. She's like Marilyn Monroe. You can use her by her first name, like Hillary. Mm-hmm. Giselle. Giselle, that's correct. You don't correct. need the Bunchen. You just need Giselle. Mm-hmm. You all remember at the Olympics when they had the Olympics in Brazil? <laughs> that was unbelievable. When she appeared, Giselle yep. appeared, and she just walked Across a runway in and, a spectacular dress. And he kept saying to himself, what is she going to do? Yeah. What is she going to do? Now, uh, th- she just walked back? Is that what she did? No, she just, no, she did not walk back. If I recall, she just kept walking. And you keep, everybody you're watching was saying, boy, is this going to be incredible? The end of this is going to be incredible. And all she did was walk from one end of the Olympic Stadium to the other end of the Olympic Stadium. That's okay. all they got to do, the Giselles and the Toms and or, the whatever. And I was at the Boston Herald, yeah. a, a good friend of mine, Mark Garfinkel, great photographer. Oh, he is great. They used to live in the Back Bay, Giselle and Tom, because yeah. we were on the first name basis. Giselle sure, and Tom lived were, in the Back yeah. Bay. And he would just, you know, he, he wasn't close to their apartment. They have these big long lenses, you know, when you're mm-hmm. one of these photographers that does yeah. these celebrity shots. Sure. He could sit like blocks away, and the moment he came, up, they came out of the house. He could get a picture of them from far away. Sure. I believe he financed his honeymoon on one, those p- on one picture he oh, sold of Giselle, Giselle and Tom. Can I tell you something? Mm-hmm. Uh, I these are the kinds of things where I pretend that I am totally you know blasé about. Who uh-huh. cares? You know, a very good friend of ours invited me to go to a Patriots game. Oh, I, that's right. Three or four years yep. ago, in a rather nice set of seats, I should say. And uh, he said beforehand because. He has some access. He says, "You want to get out on the field and just see before the game?" I said, "No, who cares about going down the field? You know what's the big deal?" He says, "No, come on." So we go down to the field, and again, I'm trying to act so cool. Well, who cares? I mean, you know, Brady runs by like 15 feet away pregame. I literally almost <laughs> passed out. It was like it's so incredible. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. So, what do you make of this thing? This is. I mean, it really is the biggest story, not just in greater Boston, but if CNN is any guide, it's the biggest story in America right now. The little disappointing thing, here he is last night. You know, he does a little podcast called Let's Go. Here he is just last night on this podcast. This is a little disappointing to me. Here's what he had to say. Obviously, he's trying to say that the reports from the ESPN guys this weekend, the tweets that he had announced that he decided to retire were premature, but obviously they were not. Here's Brady. You know, there's a lot of interest in when I'm going to stop playing, and I understand that. I don't. It's not that I don't recognize that. It's just when I when I know, I'll know, and when I don't know, I don't know, and I'm not going to you know race to some conclusion about that. Except the next morning, then I will race to that conclusion. So he's gone. Uh, by the way, this is not open only to football fans. This is open to anybody who has lived through 20 years in Boston of uh, Tom Brady, even though his Instagram post would suggest he doesn't remember any of it. And, you know, that little clip that 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 uh, uh, Marilyn played, Now I haven't heard the whole clip. I hadn't heard it before yep. at all released by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It doesn't even, in that little clip, even mention the Patriots or New England. It I says, I played for one team or one city for 20 years, and then I came to Tampa Bay. So to say that he is upset with the hometown team is, uh, you know what, you know, one of the interesting things, mm-hmm. and maybe one of our sports fans, yeah. callers in a minute, 877-301-8970 can answer this question. When you go into the Baseball Hall of Fame, I'm 90% sure I'm right about this, if you've played for more than one team, yeah. you, the inductee, for example, uh, uh, 
uh, David Ortiz played for Minnesota before he played the Red Sox. Uh-huh. I believe he has the right to decide. I want my bronze bust can either be with a Red Sox hat or a Minnesota hat. Obviously, he's going to pick the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. If Brady has the same right when he's inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame, yeah. does he have the ability to pick a Tampa Bay Buccaneer helmet or jersey or whatever I, I, for his bust instead of the Patriots? of the Hall of Fame, you I don't? must admit. But I do know, what do you know? That, that Giselle yeah. threw over Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I do know that. For yeah. Tom Brady. Yeah. You know, which was, and then there was the minor scandal. Remember when uh, Brady announced that he was um, he was dating Giselle, but yes. his previous girlfriend, Bridget, Bridget Moynihan, was with child, number one. With child, it was yeah. like a brief scandal. Mm-hmm. And some people were very mad at Tom Brady. They thought that he had you know, not treated Bridget very nicely, but apparently they all get along now. They do? Giselle, Bridget, yep, they have a blended family. And their child, Jack Benny. Now, <laughs> let me just say one of the, speaking of Giselle, Giselle's greatest quote of all time, you've all heard this about a million times. Here she is. This is after uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Giants have beaten the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And I think it was the first time, not the second time. And was it Wes Welker? Who was the end who dropped the ball? It was a tough catch, but he dropped I the ball. Remember. I think it was... It was Wes Walker. Thank, Thank you, John you. Parker. Here is uh, a Bunchen's infamous retort to a drunk Giants fan right after the loss to uh, the Giants. Here it is. Well, you can't hear that, but essentially it says, my husband cannot effing throw the ball and catch the ball at the same time, which I think is probably pretty much true. Should we take some calls, Morgan? We should take some calls. Let's start with Johnny from Gardner. Thank you for calling Johnny. Is Johnny John? <laughs> hey, John, how are you? I'm oh. well, thank you. Oh, you're Patrick. Johnny today. What's you're, up? You're, you're mixing it up. Yes, John. You're not only a 39-year-old grandmother, you're now one of my sisters uh, by something, because that's what my sisters call me from the youthful days. Oh, okay, oh, I like that. okay, okay. Can I have a quick aside, Jim? Yeah. Um, will you guys say hello to Trenny for me and tell her I, we all miss we're all going to die on Saturday afternoon? Oh, I bet her a great, she had a great uh, Sunday show with John Tom- Saturday show with John Tomasi on AEI for yeah. a while. It was really great. All right. We will tell her. What's up, John? I have a full disclosure. If you'd permit me, I have a poem. Oh, oh certainly. of course. We want a I Tom Brady full, poem. Yeah. Full disclosure, I wrote this yesterday morning before the decision. I didn't brush it up. Another station made the egregious error of not taking my call so they could enjoy this poem. So you guys <laughs> Well, we'll decide how much we enjoy it. We'll be the judge. Go ahead, John. It's a little lengthier than usual. Okay, oh, okay not God. too long, Go ahead, John. John. Not too long. Go. Oh, our Tommy boy, what has happened to you, you to you? You were loved all around as you were the kid underdog after you went in a round too late. So you vowed to show one and all. As you worked hard, your skills grew and grew. Your chance it did come, though at the expense of one named Drew. And holy cow, you guided the ship as indeed your skills you did hone. And over the years, you did us all wow. So many trophies you brought home, you indeed passed all tests. And most all agreed you were the GOAT. Over the years, you and Bill did not always agree. But together with the team, you all glowed bringing home trophies sixfold. As the years did go by, turmoil with Bill grew, and so from the Pats Coop you flew. On to number seven in Tampa Bay, you showed all you could still play, indeed still play. But now, as your career winds down, we Mm. find your personal antics, well, a bit overdone. Over the years, you did self-promote, as indeed you went corporate. We now all Can you hold one second? I'm going to get coffee. Do you want coffee, Marjorie? <laughs> is this all? Let me say from the bottom of my heart, this is the worst poem I've ever heard. Is this almost like over? <laughs> we, know, we now all await the big announcement and wonder, oh, whether God, to- wonder where our Tommy boy went. Okay. It seems you are so self-involved, you lack that certain grace 
that drew us to you in the first place. Mm -hmm. Before your rep totally devolves, as you make your damn videos and self-talks, just let us all know you plan not into the sunset to go, but to continue to self-aggrandize as your corporation grows. Okay, John. Okay, John, let me just say this to you. If you can give me the name of the producer who wouldn't Wait, wait. If you can give me the name of the producer on the other radio station who wouldn't let you on the air, we're going to hire her. Chris, to some you maintain... No, John. Read us the last line. ...and become dull. We know the stage you will not yield. Okay, John. We have to say, simply want the corporate Tom to yes, go away. Oh, our Tommy boy, what has happened to you? Thank you, Jim and Marjorie. Oh, that was... Let me just tell you something, John. I guess... Robert Frost got nothing on you. Thanks for the... uh, John's there. not a fan, I guess, of uh, well, John he is, and he is. I mean, he's corporate. He's gone a little corporate kind of thing. Yeah, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. By the way, you know the TB twelve thing, which is down on Boylston Street. Oh yeah, right near the Cross right. Library, where we're hopefully going to soon return to broadcast. Marjorie had to stand where Very she stood because if she faced the photograph of Tom, this is a totally true story. <laughs> she was afraid she wouldn't be able well, to concentrate. Well, it wasn't just a photograph. It was like it was like twelve feet high yeah, and twelve feet wide yeah. of his face. It was a huge photograph that was staring right at me, Jim, staring right at me. And of course, down at the library, we used to see the parade, the duck boat parade, go by, and you'd actually get to see Tom on the duck boats, which was very exciting to us all. 877-301-8970. I forgot to mention before I was talking about Giselle. Yeah. You know Giselle gave birth to her first child in a bathtub? Of course I do. You told me. Like, didn't you and, do a column? Did you do a column oh, about that in the Boston Herald? Absolutely. Post several. I think a whole series, right? Yes. <laughs> and the story was that she got up after the birth in the bathtub and made everyone pancakes in the room. She did? Yeah, because I mean, it's, Why the, wouldn't per- she? it's the perfect couple. She's a supermodel. He's a super quarterback. You know, some people just... Get it all, Jim. By the way, if anybody listening right now, as we're talking about the retirement announced this morning of, officially of Tom Brady, has another poem like John's, uh, feel free to call another radio station. <laughs> Gary and Brockton, you are next on Boston Public Radio. How are you dealing with the news, Gary? Oh, good morning, my Hi. fine people. Hey. <laughs> as usual, I'm conflicted about Tom Brady. On one hand, I'm very... Full of gratitude, because for 20 years, this guy was amazing. amazing. He gave us so many great parties. We, <laughs> we had a reason to watch every Sunday. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. you know the type of people you look on Instagram or something? And they have it all. They have everything. They have the perfect job, the perfect <laughs> I look, know. the perfect the perfect freaking dog. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, maybe I'm a little cranky. I just pulled my back vacuuming, okay? My wife doesn't do it anymore. But I got to tell you, I, I'm so sick of Tom Brady and Giselle. Go away now. We love you. Go, go just... Take a vacation and don't Go come away. back. I'm sorry. No, hey, I, Gary, you know, I think Gary, you speak for a lot of people. Gary, the, thank there you. There is a lot of hostility toward uh, toward Brady out here. This is from uh, uh, Christo- Christopher, Trump backer, Thanks, wasn't Gary. he? Along with that bot guy, I don't follow hockey anyway. It would be impossible for me to care. So we don't even – but do we, do we know – I mean, he was no, friendly well, and they played golf. I, he, he was had the MAGA Trump hat in, in, his, his locker, in his locker, yeah. but yeah. I don't think he was a Trump backer based on his appearance that we have sound. Oh, with Biden, the White you want to play that? Here's Brady at the White House just last yes. year. This is after the Bucks, Tampa Bay Bucks won his seventh and final Super Bowl. Here it is. Which of the rings do you like the best? What's uh, your favorite ring? My favorite ring. We always said, and I said always the next one. That's the 60 the Minutes thing. Forget that. Let's hear Brady at the White House with Joe Biden. Yeah, Let, just we got a rhythm. We got on a roll. Not a lot of people, uh, you know, think that we could have won. And, um, in fact, I think about 40% of the people still don't think we won. 
understand you understand that, Mr. President? I understand that. Yeah. That's a pretty good joke, by the way. That was yeah. a joke in good nature at uh, Joe Biden's expense, obviously, but really at the expense of uh, Mr. MAGA, uh, Donald Trump. 877-301-8970. We're talking about the formal announcement this morning of Tom Brady's uh, retirement. And again, I, I don't mean to make, well, I do. The fact that if he just mentioned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in one line and didn't mention the Patriots, you say, well, that was unfortunate. Eight paragraphs, I would say roughly half of his farewell announcement on Instagram is about the Bucks. Again, the staff, the, the general manager, the coach, the owner, not a word about New England or the Patriots. Here's a Lisa, another person, not a big fan. What'd she say? Bye, bye. He's a shameless huckster peddling dubious science for money he doesn't need. I guess that means he gets a podcast like Joe Rogan. <laughs> well, by the way, a lot of his health advice is uh, scary. It's like Dr. Oz, uh, Joe Rogan kind of stuff. That is, And Alex Guerrero, who also got in trouble for some of his health advice. But today, uh, Tom Brady, obviously no one wants to celebrate his accomplishments. I sort of do. Marjorie and all the other callers, including the guy who threw out his back, uh, do not. You know, I wonder what happened to Layla Roberts. She was one of his Who's earlier she? girlfriends. He dated her back in 2002. You did. She was a former Playmate of the Month. Was that before or after Tara Reid? That was apparently before Tara Reid. And Tara Reid was in 2002. And uh, she said uh, he was pretty good looking, which I guess is an understatement, in a 2014 interview on the Australian radio show Kylie and Jackie O. I listen to Kylie and Jackie O. <laughs> Susanna, you are in Arlington. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the retirement of Tom Brady. Hello there, Susanna. Bye-bye, Brady. I had the happiest day when I heard about it the other day. I'm more joyous today. Um, he's a huckster. He is an egotistical, um, just full of himself. And uh, I hope that uh, Boston kisses him goodbye and... Burns their burns all of their jerseys. jerseys. Well, so you're wow. undecided, I, essentially. I'm Susanna, I'm aghast that he. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. You're doing great. Go no, ahead. I said I'm, I'm a, I'm aghast that he didn't even include the fans. If he's unhappy good with point. Belichick and good point. And Kraft, um, that's one thing. But how about the fans that gave him his his glory and his money? I just am. I, I I'm, I'm joyous that he's gone. And I hope that uh, everyone stops talking about him and maybe he'll just go away. Susanna, we're glad you're happy. Thank you very, very much for the phone call. Of hostility. Lori sums it up. Yep. Good riddance, she says. Well, Susanna, I mean, she makes a very good point, which I haven't thought of. It's one thing to diss Kraft, who said he's like my son. It's another thing to diss uh, Belichick. And remember when the Patriots played here, the uh, Bucks played here last year? <laughs> Theoretically, they had a rapprochement earlier this year, a rapprochement yeah. kind of thing. Obviously, that didn't happen. But she's right, Susanna, to diss the fans. Exactly. How about a shout out to the fans? Here's Lorraine from New Hampshire. What'd she say? When Brady went to the Bucks, I rooted for the Patriots or any team that would beat the Bucks. The guy is way too full of himself. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's from Lorraine wow. in New Hampshire. Huckster, all I these kind you. of things. This is bitter. But gee, you know. He, he left us behind. I mean, that is what a lot of the <laughs> anger is about. He left us behind. Okay, he left us behind. We're talking about the departure of Tom Brady. Maybe we should analyze people's hostility toward Brady because it seems to be very powerful. Very You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie Egan. Tom Brady is formally retired, and apparently nobody in New England gives a damn. Uh, well, actually, they do. They're upset. They're good riddance. He's a huckster. He's whatever. Listen to this. In addition to uh, the last eighth paragraph of eight in which he mentions something to do with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in his Instagram post, to, this is – he thanked everybody. To every single Bucks staffer and employee, thank you. Each of you is critically important, and I was greeted with a smile every day. That means so much to me. Your work is made up of long hours and hard tasks, but please know I see each and every one of you. Thank you so much. He also thanks the to the city, uh, to all the Bucks fans. Thank you. I didn't know what to expect when I arrived here, etc. So he thanks all those fans, and as Susanna said, doesn't even thank the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, New England fans. Thank you very much. By the way, let's play a little more sound since you're into it. Here is Brady hosting. He's obviously going to host Saturday Night Live again, uh, I would assume, in the next month or so. Maybe not, with the hostility we're feeling here. (laughs) Maybe maybe not. He was hosting, I don't even remember this particular bit. He was hosting in 2005, and he does a little song. Here's Brady and Amy Poehler, I guess. Oh, and Seth Meyers. It's all of them. Here's Brady. I can hold my breath underwater for an hour and a half at a time. That's unbelievable. And you can rest assured the square root of 64 is most certainly 135. Yeah, I don't think that's right, actually. I can kill a horse with my bare hands. I can look at you and read your mind. I won the Tour de France, and I did it with no pants. So when I rode by, you saw my sweet behind. You know, that's pretty good, because he's not a very funny guy. And I don't know if you saw Peyton Manning on Saturday Night Live this Saturday doing a bit on the news. He was It was one of the most brilliant, funny, really? perfectly acted four-minute bits. It was just incredible. Brady, is this real? Is that really your name? Brady in a car. Hey. It is. Um, How you feeling? So I, I'm not... Uh, I, I'm feeling all right. How are you feeling? We're great. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I'm great. What's up, Brady? So I'm not surprised that Tom Brady is acting the way he's acting. And I've had one kind of secondhand interaction with him. Before I was a traveling infection prevention salesperson, <laughs> I was, uh, for 14 years, I was a nationally touring uh, singer-songwriter and stand-up comic. Like, oh. Full-time. Wow. And I had a I had a summer in 2007 where I played 80 shows on Block Island. Like, it was just a, a it, it was incredible. But I met Bridget Moynihan, uh-huh. who who wanted to buy one of my merchandise shirts for Tom. Uh-huh. And and I it had a logo of America on it. You know, it was this whole thing. And I and I was like, I'll give it to you for free if you get me a picture of him wearing it. And she was like, Well, I'll try. And and uh, he would not do that. Really? So you're glad he's yeah, gone yeah, he too, Brady, it. right? Now, sorry? You're glad he's gone too then? I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit indifferent about it, but, like, I, he's, just a, he's just a weird guy. Like, he, he um, I, I haven't ever liked him all that much. I've been impressed by him, but I've never felt affectionately toward him. Now, Brady... Having met Bridget Moynihan, as, yeah. you, as you have, what do you think? She stayed at Bridget Moynihan, or she Excellent left her question. for Giselle? What really do you think? Question. I nearly peed down one leg. Really, <laughs> I've done that quite a bit, actually. Yeah. But why for you? I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm a I'm a fan of Bridget Moynihan. I was I I'm, I felt really lucky that she talked to me instead of just. 
spitting on me as she walked by. Honestly. Now, Brady, <laughs> Brady, here's the question that I'm thinking about. This is a great story you're telling. Did she know that you had peed down your leg when you were talking to her, or were you able to keep it to yourself? I, I was, I, I think I did a good job of keeping Excellent. it to myself. I knew but you could. only because of my, you know, comedic training. But Bra- I don't know. Brady, you were great. That was a great call, great story. Thanks for sharing it with us. We really appreciate it. Okay. After, Doesn't that aggravate you that he wouldn't pose in the damn T-shirt? It's, it's outrageous. For Brady? I'm serious. And after everybody's complaining about how much they can't stand him, Claire says she seems ungraciousness to the New England fans is disgraceful. We have above that a contrary opinion. Oh, good. Chaz says, wow, we love to build them up and then tear them down. Of Thank you, Tom. I have 20 years of great memories and I'm not going to side against him. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Who said that? Chuck from Bellingham. Wow. Roger, <laughs> you were on Marblehead. You were next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the official retirement of Tom Brady this morning. Hey. Hi there, guys. Um, I wanted to celebrate uh, today because uh, they're creating a new eighth circle of hell <laughs> just to contain Tom Brady, where he'll be joining Wade Fogg, Roger Clemens, Johnny Damon, and Jacoby Ellsbury in the layer of hell that is below that for traitors. For non-sports fans, Roger's referencing great stars here who left for other teams, and Roger will never forget it. Is that Or forgive it. Is that accurate, Roger? That's correct. I mean, Babe Ruth is not included in that because the Red Sox sold him to the Yankees. Exactly. He wasn't a traitor. So he gets a special dispensation. Yeah. Um, but for all the other guys who left us in the lurch uh, for New York and now Tampa, uh, they are officially inducted into the eighth circle of hell. Yeah. Wow. I guess, Roger, you are right. There is a, lot, you, of, uh, there, a lot of animus toward uh, Tom Brady. A lot Brady's of hostility, lot, yeah. A lot of hostility. Thank you, Roger, for the call. 877-301-8970. Now, Colleen points out, wondering what everybody would be saying if Brady had stayed here until retirement. He thanked the Patriots organization when he left New England, and then he moved on. Major League Football is a business, not a love affair. What do you, you know, you haven't commented on this. What do you think of it? We'll ask Trenny in a couple of minutes, Trenny, because Nerick, what do you think of the fact that he didn't even mention, how about one line? How about, as, as Susanna said, the fans, what do you think of the fact? It was obviously a conscious decision not to well, mention, you know, do any reference to his 20 years here. What was interesting, too, is when the, the Bucks beat the Patriots um, early in the season, yeah. he got a pretty... I mean, there was some booing of him, too, yeah. but, but there was a lot of cheering for him as well. Yeah. You know, and I think the sense was, I mean, I'm not a f- football expert. Mm. As oh, you're know. not? Oh. No, but, but, but the sense was that they, that they kind of pushed him out. Wasn't that the sense that, that, uh, that, that you know, coaching with uh, the Patriots was sick of him? Well, wasn't Belichick felt, I think the feeling is, we can ask Trent, I think the feeling was that Belichick wasn't really willing to commit to him. He was 40-some years old. And that sort of stuff. But then he went and won a Super Bowl. And by the way, well, I always thought he'd go out winning a Super Bowl like last year. That comeback in the final game it's unbelievable. Uh, last week was just on. was last yeah. week, two weeks ago, whatever it was. A week and a half ago was unbelievable. Tim from Gardner. Thank you for calling, Tim. Hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. Good. Now, do you think Tom Brady oh. should be waterboarded <laughs> next time he gets anywhere near oh. New England? What, what's your position on that, Tim? Go ahead. I'm upset that people are being so mean to him, to be honest with you. Oh, good. I, good. Uh, you know, I um, I did not grow up in a football house. I didn't really watch football or really barely understood the rules until I went to college. And mm-hmm. my freshman roommate was a rabid Patriots fan. That was the 0-1 season when Bledsoe got hurt and Brady took over and took him all the way to the Super Bowl. 
and I fell in love with football. Mm. And I, I, when he left the Patriots, I realized I wasn't really a Patriots fan. I was a Tom Brady fan. I started watching the Tampa Bay games. I rooted for Tampa Bay when they played the Patriots. And I think if Tom Brady's going to retire from the NFL, I might have to retire from being an NFL fan because wow. I don't know where my loyalties lie anymore. Wow. And uh, it was really him that made the game exciting for me. And I don't know what's going to happen from here. We just there did an go. online poll, and 82% of our listeners said he should be deported. You don't, you are not part of that. You are not part of that 82%, obviously. Is that correct, Tim? I just want to be clear. That is just hurt feelings okay. because he left New England and went somewhere else. By the way, Tim, that. you nailed it. That is ridiculous. That is exactly. It's like the eighth circle of hell from the prior quote. That is what it is. He abandoned us. Tim, that was a great call. Thank you for your loyalty to. Uh, <laughs> TB12, what are you laughing about? Camilla, Deirdre and Marjorie, thank you so much. I thought I was the only one in Massachusetts who dislikes Tom Brady. (laughs) You've made my day listening to your show this morning with everybody else saying how much they can't stand him. You know, you've got to give the guy this, right? I mean, he worked like a dog, didn't he? I mean, he was he like was, a dog. He's the greatest person. Yeah, but he wasn't who, the greatest, greatest person. person. He I don't mean greatest, overlooked. greatest player. He was drafted he was quite 199th late. 199th in the draft. We all remember his the picture film of company him is called 199th. Standing there in his boxer shorts, looking very unimpressive. Yeah, and he he doughy. came from behind. And and anybody who's lived around here for a long time remembers that the Patriots were mostly struggling for certainly all of my childhood. I mean, the, the Patriots were not doing very well, and all of a sudden he comes in. And they start winning Super Bowls. Well, you know, it was a big thing, you know what wasn't the, it? You know what the hard part about this is? Even though uh, I think the sentiment of our listeners, at least, is exactly as you described it. This guy, I don't think anybody disputes this, was the greatest at what he did. Ever. Years and years ago, Marjorie and I were at the other radio station. And Mike Barnacle had a show before us. And Mike Barnacle, I don't know, called and sick or was busy one day. And his guest was a guy who had just written a book about management using his sports experience. Remember who that guy was? Bill Russell. Oh, my God. Now, Bill Russell came came in the studio, arguably the greatest at what he did as center and maybe Will Chamberlain, but right up there. When he saw us, he had no idea who we were. When he saw us, he was so disgusted. I thought he was going to walk out of the studio. But we got to spend an hour. He finally warmed up because we were very full of praise, understandably. Sycophantically, I'd say. my charm. Well, I don't think so. Actually, you know what he did for your kid, by the way? He signed. He didn't. He never signs autographs. You asked him to sign a book for your kid, and he did. But having said that, when you're in the presence, the physical presence in a little studio, we were an hour with Bill Russell. It was great. I'm sitting there saying, we're in the, we're five feet away from a man who did what he did better than anybody who has ever lived. And that is Brady. Of course, he did leave town, so he's going to the eighth circle of hell, as we learned from the prior Well, you know, maybe, maybe Brady will stop by for an hour long for the next week. Do you think so? I shook his hand at one of those head-shaving things in Quincy. Didn't wash it for a month. We only have time for one more. By the way, at the end of the show, we're going to return to uh, this, so don't feel left out. And Trenny is going to give us her two cents in a couple of minutes. Want to take one more? Yeah, Ed from Lexington. Thank you for calling. Hello, Ed. Oh, hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. sure. Love you guys. Thank Thanks. you. And uh, I love you a little less today because you're trashing Tom Brady. <laughs> Not us. But... The listeners don't love us any less. No, Jim, what? Jim, Jim, no, listen to me. You're participating. I am. Okay. In a slight way. <laughs> okay, I'm we're sorry. both participating. Go ahead. What are you going to do? Well, I saw a side of Tom Brady through a personal friend whose son was going through a devastating illness. Oh. And Tom Brady reached out to the family. He was present during the years of treatment that this young man went through 
uh, sent him little gifts, checked in, just called and would say, how you doing? Oh, my God. And the young child passed away. Oh. And Tom was uh, still present to the family after all that. So I think there's a lot of things that he does that never get into the limelight. It's oh, pretty good. <laughs> that, to me, speak a lot to his character. And uh, That's a good also, story. Yeah, he's. Uh, I'm a Tom Brady fan. And Well, and after that story, I hope Marjorie is totally ashamed of herself for ridiculing. <laughs> By the way, that is a great story and great actually story. pretty moving. Ed, thanks for sharing that with us. We really, we really appreciate no, it. No, I, I think the, the hostility of our, I mean, it's still coming in. Well, how about Ed's story? After Ed's story? It's still coming in. People By the way, that to him. me, when an athlete of that stature yep. does something that human and that caring, you got to, like, open your heart to them a little bit. You know what I mean? Uh, people, uh, one person who has diabetes said mm. they needed an insulin shot every time they heard about how Tom's greatness. Uh, John is calling him a cheater. And Robin says, I could never like anyone who refuses to eat tomatoes. Now, that, we haven't discussed the whole night. What is a nightshade? Do you have any idea what I a nightshade is? Tomato either is or is not Well, a not nightshade. only do we not know what a nightshade is, we don't know if you're supposed to eat them or you're not <laughs> supposed to eat them. So that's, there are two problems there. But you know what we're going to do? At the end of the show, we'll return to this. And by that time, one of our colleagues can tell us, one, what a nightshade is, and two, whether they're good or bad for you, according to terrific Tom okay. Terrific. Tom Terrific was thought not to be so terrific by a lot of our listeners, but we'll Lux get the final that word. Was that was a great story. That was a great story. Coming up, Sports Authority, Trenny Kuznarek, she's going to tell us about Tom's retirement and why everybody doesn't like him, or at least most That's people don't. True. Well, they don't. I, I, our callers. I like them. I like them, too, now. Anyway, uh, Trinity Kuznarek is next. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. Joining us now, hopefully with a little more respectful treatment of the GOAT, is NBC Sports Boston anchor and reporter Trenny Kuznarek. Trenny, of course, is also a BPR contributor. Hey, Trenny, how are you? Uh, Jim, don't you have something to say? Yeah, I um, see two Emmys over your right shoulder. Is nope, that what you're talking nope, about in the video? Nope, 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 that's not it. I was doing TV, so oh, that's okay, why I thank have you. this TV like nice setting. No, I think what you should say is, Trenny, I'm, I'm so sorry for giving you my smug mug stare last week when you said you thought Tom Brady was going to retire. And I looked right at you in the Zoom camera and said, he's not retiring, Trenny. <laughs> okay, so, so I one small wait. mistake. You know, when, we, when, we, when you feel comfortable, I think dinner, babies, <laughs> cocktails um, as, a, as, a, as an apology. Exactly. Um, yes, and just, you know, patting me on the back a little bit. Maybe I'll get another Emmy. Predicting. By the way, she's um, no. on Zoom, by the way, over her right shoulder. Trani Kuznarek has not one moved to the side a little. Thank you very much. But two, count them, two lovely New England regional Emmys for her oh wonderful my God. work. There she is. There she is. Hi, Trani. It's a little late getting to the Hi, Zoom Marjorie. meeting here. That's okay. So, so, no worries. So uh, we're going to ask you, of course, about Tom Brady's retirement. But I want to ask you also, we dealt with an awful lot of hostility from our listeners uh, toward uh, the goat. What do you make of that? Is it, it, I think because he left. Didn't you think that was the sentiment, the, the common thread through the criticism? 
Marjorie? No, no. So, people were sick of. They thought he was a huckster. They thought oh, he was a cheater. They that's thought right. he was. You know, uh, right. they were okay. sick of hearing about him. They thought he was too business busy, worrying about nightshades. All this. Do you think this is because he didn't mention New England at all in his retirement statement? Yeah, what do you make of that? By the way, that is amazing to me. So, I, listen. A couple of the guys that I work with, Tommy Curran and Phil Perry, you know, Phil's more in the middle. Like, I can see why you'd be upset. But, you know, he did say thank you to New England when he left to go to he Tampa, did. to he which did. to which, but to which I say a little different when you're like running out the door to say thank you so much. I'm out. than when you make a eight page Instagram <laughs> statement about the end of your career, to which, by the way, you go all the way back and even mention the University of Michigan and how your career started there. And he mentions, you know, sort of in a in a very generalized term all of the players all of the every you know thing in the nfl that made him who he is and i do to me and listen i'm not a patriots fan everybody knows this um I, i've grown to like the team I, I, under mac jones i've started rooting for them my, my team is still the uh loser uh, green bay packers um <laughs> Trey's from gonna, wisconsin for those who if, don't know but go ahead if, if if aaron Rodgers, you know goes let's say he goes to denver and finish his career there, and then he retires, and he doesn't say anything at the end of it about about Green Bay. I would definitely be like, "What?" Dude? But but I would expect it from Aaron Rodgers because he's kind of a jerk. Like you know, to me, Tom Brady is not a jerk, and he's also very media savvy. Like this isn't someone like everything he does is calculated exactly. and thought about, and so. To me, this was executed. This was a planned execution. There is a reason he did not mention New England. I'm just not sure what it is. Maybe it's something as simple as, and some people have suggested, maybe he will, within a day or the hours, sign a one-day contract with the Patriots and say, I'm going to retire a Patriot, and, you know, this is how I wanted to do it, and that's why I didn't. You know, there's, I, I suppose there's, there's options. But I still don't understand how you can't do both, how you can't retire a patriot and also put in your very lengthy retirement statement. Um, you know, I began my career, my professional career, and won six of my seven Super Bowls with Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. Um, and to only mention Tampa, um, to me, I mean, I don't blame I don't blame Patriots fans for leaving a bad taste in their mouth. Although for the vitriol, I don't know if it's that or maybe you know. Listen, I don't think the, I don't think Tom Brady is a bad guy. Um, I don't know if people are miffed that he left. I, I don't know. I'm surprised at all the vitriol on this day because to me, him walking away is in a way softened me a little bit on him. Like he, I mean, no matter what you think of the guy, he was the greatest player to ever. Oh my yeah, god! And you and you had a front row seat to it. Like that's amazing. Yeah, and all those fourth quarter unbelievable. Con- he nerves of steel. You know, ice water in his veins, as it were. I mean, yeah. I, when you see him get up there with like four minutes left in the game or two minutes left in the game and bang, bang, bang. They were showing all some of his greatest plays this morning over and over and over again. Well, how about just the Atlanta Super Bowl? They're down 28 to <clears throat> yep. three yeah. in the third damn quarter. And, and they he almost win did the it Super again. Bowl. He almost did it again last week yeah, or did. two weeks ago, whenever it was, when they were behind. And they almost they came up and tied at 27-27. Can we yeah. stay on this thing, though, for a second? You know, the more I think about this, regardless of whether he's doing that one-day contract thing, like that Susanna caller said, you know, it's one thing if he's got a problem with Kraft about which I don't quite. I mean, they did draft him. Apparently, a real thing with him was that he was not drafted until 199th after X number of quarterbacks. But that's not on the Patriots. No, They're it's the exactly the opposite. Exactly. You know? So if he's upset with Kraft about something, maybe upset with Belichick, why doesn't he at least mention 
thank you to all the fans for the 20 years of love, affection, and spending $120 on my jersey, you know? But to that end, Jim, like, I, I, to me, you, if you're going to mention the fans, I think you probably also mentioned the organization. Maybe like, right, maybe right. I, I just, I, and to me, even if things didn't end perfectly, um, I, you know, he's always said the right things about the mm-hmm. Patriots. And to the best of our knowledge, at least what was, you know, sort of leaked out and, um, and, and talked about pri- uh, following that, that, that game where Tampa came to and played the Patriots and beat the Patriots at home, that him and Belichick had like sort of a long conversation in the locker right. room. And that seemed to sort of, you know, soften things and, 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 and lessen any animosity. So I, I guess I just don't know why if you're Tom Brady, like, even if, even let's just say for argument's sake, you can't stand Belichick. You think Kraft did you dirty. You think he didn't stand up for you. Didn't give you enough money. All this other stuff. Don't you just avoid what's happening right now by just putting a paragraph in there? I agree. I don't. You just like to me. I would say, who are your PR people? What do they work for the CDC? Like, you know, can't get any messaging right. I, I just, I don't, I, I don't get it. Like, I, I don't understand why. It, I should put it this way. If I was on Tom Brady's PR team, and if you paid me enough money, I'd be happy to do it. I would have for sure put a full a page again in that Instagram side, you know, because there was one part where he talked about like all about Tampa, and then he said he went to this page about where it's like that's where I was like, okay, here's where the New England part's coming, and he started speaking about um, you know the, the history and the game and how long he played. And I was like, okay, here we go, here we go. Swipe. Nope. It was like it was like. <laughs> It's like a fruitless swiping on Tinder. Yeah. Like you just kept waiting for the one that you that, that, that picked you and no one ever picks you. We're talking to Trenny Kuznarek about the retirement uh, formally announced this morning of uh, obviously of uh, Tom Brady. Are you, uh, I'm sorry. Just just one last thing, though. Is it because it was just too, it was just too much perfection? Tom Brady, Giselle Bunchen, the whole thing. Is, is that some of the hostility? Or Maybe. Is it because- and I. Or and the science, think- the science stuff with Alex Guerrero that uh, Belichick called him out on, said the guy is not a legit guy, and I think yeah, the, I, I mean, think the cookbook went for about two hundred dollars, didn't it? That they had I think the it did, uh, yeah. no nightshades cookbook. We've determined, by the way, our staff has that the nightshades. Oh, it's gone now. We'll yeah. have it at one o'clock. We'll okay. have it later in the show. We'll, we'll, we'll look into the nightshades a little bit later. But in any case, that cookbook was very, very expensive when he was doing the. Uh, vegan thing right yes and in fairness um and obviously i love all sports fans equally and they all help me keep and maintain a a a job um but the people who listen to npr um are probably going to view sports as our as our segments are from a different lens than say someone who's listening you know to the sports hub or wei right right now where they're where those fans are probably like solely concerned with the X's and O's and the and the scoreboard, whereas um, I would say your sports fans are probably a little more nuanced and see the entire person. They don't just get blinded by the rings and the stats. They say, okay, here's a guy who had a lot of influence in his time and had a major platform. And looking back, 
I wonder if, you know, some of your listeners and other people in Boston are frustrated by how he used that platform. He wasn't someone who spoke out against racial injustices when there, when there, when there were issues. He's not someone who has come out publicly and demanded or asked for, you know, more equitable treatment of black, black coaching candidates and more black coaches. Um, he is someone who, you know, was peddling concussion water yeah. and saying, if you drink it's enough true. water and then you don't need sunscreen and if you do this and, but Hey, if you follow my method, um, you can play until you're, you know, into your forties, but it's going to cost you $400, you know, for the book. And then $300 thereafter for every session that you spend at the TV 12. Like, I think that, you know, you can look at Tom Brady. I think too often we do this just overall, I know dabbling here, but with sports is we don't take we don't take into account the entire human being. We just take into account either what they are off the field or what they are on the field. And like anyone, they're human beings and they are a compilation of both. And, you know, he is at different parts in his life, many different people, but I don't think he's with that said, I don't think he's like a bad. No, but I think also, I just want to amend what I agree with your analysis for our listeners. I think Marjorie would agree too. Our listeners are more concerned with things like the eighth circle of hell <laughs> than they are about the X's on. and O's on the We uh, have to point field. this out because I mentioned before, potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, all common nightshades they that are? claim harmful substances in these vegetables may contribute to inflammatory bowel disease. Oh my God. And other autoimmune conditions. Wow. So we're I against them. Is that of, correct? I guess so. Well, that I'd explains be, something. That's all you eat are nightshades. Oh, Based on that criteria and tomatoes. Hey, you know, I guess I'm in big trouble. Hey, Trenny, uh, uh, I'm sick of Tom Brady already. Can we talk about another great champion? Uh, at, at this, did you either of you see this Rafael Nadal thing at the Australian Open? Oh, just online. The whole discussion for those, and by the way, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I am a fan of people who are incredible at what they do, like Tom Brady, by the way. You know, this guy, we all focused on uh, uh, Djokovic breaking the all-time record and winning 21 uh, 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 Grand Slams. He'd break the tie with Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Djokovic gets sent home, obviously, to Serbia and gets thrown out of Australia. And lo and behold, Rafael Nadal wins the 21st to break the record, break the tie. That was one of the greatest tennis matches I have ever seen in my life. That's not hyperbole, is it? No, he was down two sets to Daniil Medvedev, who is a rising star. Like when yeah. you start to look at sort of the new faces of tennis as uh, Nadal, Djokovic, and, you know, really definitely Federer, who's over 40 years old, uh, sort of start to, to, you know, their, their game starts to win, start to wane a little bit, you're looking at guys like Daniil Medvedev mm-hmm. um, and Alexander Zverev, um as sort of the, the next big names in tennis. And there's also, I, there's a Spanish kid too is really good that everybody thinks might be the next Rafael Nadal. Um, and he's down 0-2 to this guy, who's, who also, by the way, I covered Medvedev at, at the Olympics. Medvedev's mm-hmm. probably 6-5 or 6-6, and Nadal is probably 5-7, five, 5-8. Five, really? So the power differential and the, the wingspan differential between the two, Rafael Nadal is not much taller than I am. I'd say at most he's 5 10 maybe maybe he's six feet and six feet just seems small to me after covering like football and basketball mm-hmm. players uh, but Medvedev is a massive human being um, and and he's known for a serve that is upwards of I think like 145 150 miles maybe even more than that uh, miles per hour um, and Nadal just wore him down he just wore him down in, in a way that was just surgical I, I mean fully disclosure I didn't watch it live I went back and watched some replays me and, like, too um, me too and, and highlights and whatnot, because um, I like to sleep. I'm not a vampire. <laughs> um, 
but he really, and I love Rafael Nadal, like for everything that's said sort of negatively about um, Novak Djokovic, like Nadal, I feel is like the exact opposite guy, right? Um, he is, he has been a big like pusher of vaccines and, and equality in tennis as is, as is Djokovic. Um, but yeah, like when Djokovic didn't take the vaccine, like, uh, Nadal basically said, Hey, listen, that's fine. You have your personal choice, but there are consequences for those choices. So I'm not going to feel bad for you. You know, you should get the vaccine. The rest of us have done it. You know, you're not above or different than the rest of us. Um, and so, and he's just, he's, it all's like, he's a cool, he's just kind of, I don't know, there's something about him, there's something sort of weirdly regular about him, um, compared to like a Novak Djokovic. He's also so I think old Djokovic has more of like a, I mean, it's sort know, of Brady-esque. He's not as old as Brady, but he's in um, his mid thirties. Is he not? At yeah, least? he's, I think he's 35 or I think so 36. Too. Cause I think. Djokovic is like 34 or 35 and Nadal is like a year or two older than neither of them are as, um, as advanced in age as Roger Federer. Hey, so before you go, the Olympics are turning into kind of a problem with all these athletes testing um, positive. Yeah, they've had some, um, you know, mostly it's happened before they've even stepped on the plane, which, um, you know, Listen, I don't know how we get to a point. I suppose at some point, once this becomes endemic, this begins to change. But, you know, a lot of these these athletes are having their Olympics hopes and dreams completely yeah. dashed. They don't even know they have COVID because they're not symptomatic, right? Mm-hmm. And they're vaccinated. And now they are forced to stay home and not compete. Um, the Netherlands was hit. Uh, was it the Netherlands and Norway? This is terrible. I know they're two different countries, and I know oh, the, they're very different places. Norway with the cross-country of, team. You. Yeah. I kind of get them screwed up sometimes. Um, so Norway has really been decimated by it. So far, knock on wood, Team USA um, you know, hasn't had any major issues, but it'll be interesting. I've been kind of texting back and forth with some people who I know who are over there and people I've worked with in curling. Um, and they say the bubble that, you know, that they're just in this, like what they call a closed loop bubble um, and that they're just sort of moving amongst each other. But I, I know that it's a it's a real fear because imagine getting over there and you kind of think you're in this like enclosed yeah, place horrible. and you think you're sort of in a safe space. And then right before competition or God forbid, during competition, you test positive and all of that hard work and, and, and everything is, is knocked away. By the way, if you're looking for a little primer for the Olympics, yeah. um, if you have Xfinity, you definitely have Peacock. If not, subscribe to Peacock uh, because it's the one place you can see a lot of Olympic coverage. Jim, you will love this. They did a four-part. It's only two hours. It's like a half hour each. A four-part documentary series, docuseries called American Rockstars. And it's all about the men's curling team from 2018. Oh, oh my and it's God. awesome. Great. It's this really fun. I mean, my fiance like doesn't know anything. Sean knows nothing about curling. Um, and he was laughing and he was like exclaiming when there were good shots, like during the Olympic That's trials, great. like he was like kind of getting into it. It's a really, and it's just a really cool look at these really regular guys and, and how hard it is and the pressure to, to make an Olympics in that four-year cycle. And I know there's a lot of controversy around this Olympic Games, but at the end of the day, these athletes have worked really, really hard. I have to two quick things. One, if people don't know, Trenny did the gold covered and broadcast the uh, gold medal winning U.S. Uh, curling team. At the last Didn't make the documentary, Olympics. though. I'm not bitter about it at all. But dude. let me tell you, i got to make a correction. We only have 30 <laughs> seconds left. Last time we talked to you, because of COVID, we talked to you about how there'd be no free condoms 
at this Olympics. Are, as oh soon God, as you hung you up, yes. USA Today says, while you are not, listen to this, while you are not supposed to hug another athlete, there are free condoms. <laughs> Explain that That's one, right. okay? Well, you can't, I guess you can't cover up your entire body, but. But I'm pumped. Thank you very much. Trenny, it's great to see you. The Emmys Family look beautiful. Show. Be well. Exactly. Take care. Thank Bye you guys. very much, Trenny. Trenny Kuznarek is an NBC Sports Boston anchor and reporter and a contributor to Boston Public Radio. Coming up, will Massachusetts voters ever be able to register to vote on the day of an election? Carol Rose of the ACLU of Massachusetts joins us to discuss that and her efforts to secure abortion rights in Massachusetts, no matter what the Supreme Court does. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Public Radio, Carol Rose of the Civil Resilience of Massachusetts will join us to explain why she feels the state needs more explicit language in its constitution to protect safe and accessible abortion, and to discuss the unusual decision by a federal judge to reject plea deals in the hate crime trials against the men who murdered Ahmed Arbery. Then restaurants are bidding farewell to their phone lines, causing relief for workers and frustration for a whole lot of customers. We'll get reactions from our food and policy expert, Corby Kummer. We'll also be talking about new reports about American food waste and its impact on climate change. Then CNN's John King will touch base on the latest out of Washington, including revelations about Trump's involvement in trying to seize voting machines to undermine the 2020 election. All that and more ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Egan, you are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. So last week, House members on Beacon Hill approved many COVID-era voting reforms and expansions to mail-in voting, but they rejected same-day voter registration, a practice used in only 20 other states and supported by the Civil Liberties Union. Joining us now to discuss this is Carol Rose. She's the executive director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Carol, it's good to talk to you. Great to be here. Hey, great to talk to you too, Carol. So let's start um, with a federal judge ruling in the um, – people remember, of course, the, the horrible fatal shooting of Amand Arbery, the young black man that was jogging and was uh, hunted down basically and shot to death. A federal judge um, rejected a plea involving a hate crimes uh, uh, plea. Tell us about this. It was very unusual, I think. Yeah, so, you know, based on the reports I've been reading, um, it, it suggests that uh, Arbor's family objected to the plea deal because it would have allowed the defendants to serve at least some of their time in federal prison. They've already been convicted of murder in the state court, so they're in the state prison right now. 
Um, and, and state prisons generally are viewed as harsher than federal prisons, and also because they felt that the prosecutors didn't adequately consult them. Um, you know, so that's understandable. On the other hand, it's also kind of understandable what the prosecutors were possibly trying to do. If they could get a public admission that the crime was motivated by race, right. um, that would give them an assurance of a long prison sentence, and that would maybe mitigate the risk that the defendants could appeal their state. Well, you know what I you know what I thought was unusual, and you're a lawyer, and I'm not. Jim is sort of a lawyer, sort as we of. know. But but that typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Carol, what the family thinks. I mean, you get to make your your victim impact statement, but what the family thinks is not necessarily what goes. And there was this heart wrenching quote from the mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, um, saying she says to the judge, "Please listen to me. Granting these men their preferred choice of confinement." would defeat me. It gives them one last chance to spit in my face. And obviously, you know, I mean, she, her son was murdered. It doesn't get any worse than that. But on the other hand, from what I know of the criminal justice system, that doesn't necessarily get you anywhere, typically. Well, yeah. I mean, it's hard to know whether the, it's, it's kind of unclear whether the judge was moved by the family. That certainly seems plausible in this case. Um, others are reporting that the judge rejected it because it would have locked the judge into a specific sentence. Um, so, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out. But, you know, judges do have the discretion uh, to reject a plea deal. It's just not very often that they do so. Before we leave this topic, I just used the word uh, uh, motivation before. And it's important because a lot of people don't understand. Well, well, wait, they were convicted of murder. Two of them sentenced to life without possibility of parole in a state court. One life with the possibility of parole. What's the point of this? And you just said it, but I want to emphasize it. You know, the state thing was, did you do it? Did you commit that crime? Yes, you did. And the federal litigation is about motivation. You know, was it a hate crime? Was it based upon race? And so that's why these things are happening. So theoretically, unless something dramatic happens, jury selection is going to start in these cases on Monday, right? Yeah, that's right. No, it's going to go forward. And, you know, a lot of it's interesting to think about, like, what about double jeopardy? Can you be charged for the same crime twice? That's mm -hmm. not what happened here. Yeah. There's, first, there's two separate sovereigns, the federal and the state government. Um, and then beyond that, it's two separate crimes. So one is the murder itself and the other is the crime of a federal hate crime, violating the hate crime statute. Um, so, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out. You know, I think that uh, it's really important that we're having the public conversation about this. Uh, about the fact that these crimes take place and that they are motivated by racial animus and by hatred. Um, and so I think it's important that we have the public conversation and perhaps the trial will give us that conversation that a plea deal might not have. We're talking to Carol Rose from the ACLU. So, Carol, uh, what, what's your take on the uh, retirement, the yes, retirement of Supreme Court Justice Breyer, lives over there in Cambridge, uh, and uh, President Biden's announcement that uh, want a black woman will uh, – uh, succeed him on the court? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, Breyer has really proven himself to be a, a good jurist, a, a wonderful jurist, in fact, in the sense that he really used his position as a Supreme Court justice to try to make sure that fairness and justice was done, uh, rather than being an ideologue. Um, and increasingly, the court seems to be uh, populated by people who have political agendas or ideological agendas rather than the agenda of the institution of the court itself, which is, I think, where Justice Breyer's heart went. Um, in terms of the, the criticisms of Biden uh, for saying 
uh, you know, that he is going to appoint a black woman to the bench. I mean, I would submit a couple things. First, I hope those same people were equally critical of Ronald Reagan when he said he was going to appoint a woman to the bench when he appointed Sandra Day O'Connor. But beyond that, um, you know, I think Charles Blow has a great piece in the New York Times where he talks about that nominations to the court have always been about identity and politics. It's just that for the last, you know, 200 plus years, we've had 115 justices, 108 of which have been white men. Uh, we just didn't need to say it. It's like the fish who says, what's water? I'm just in it. Uh, and so identity <laughs> and politics have always been there. It was just the identity were always white men. Uh, and and so I, I have no doubt that we're going to have an incredibly qualified appointment um, and someone who gets to the bench um, based on the, the people who the president has said are in his uh, up for consideration. They're all remarkably qualified jurists, um, and I think we're going to have a really good appointment. I hope so. And a quick uh, uh, ratification by the Senate. You know, speaking of uh, – That Supreme, I'm not sure about. Speaking of this uh, – well, actually, it, it, stay on that for a second. I, Chuck Todd was with us the other day, and I totally agree with him. This is not uh, – I, I don't see it at all. All of value, except to the, I was going to say the real extremists of the Republicans in the Senate, but that covers a lot of people. Making a, a fuss about this doesn't change the ideological balance of the court. Doesn't help them, I don't think. It's one thing to criticize the the uh, focus of Joe Biden. It's another thing to criticize the individual herself once she's chosen. And three, it distracts from what's been a pretty successful uh, criticism of the current administration. By the Republicans. So, do you really foresee a, a an epic battle, a la some of the things we've seen in recent years, like Kavanaugh? I don't see it at all. Do you? You know, I hope not. But I have to tell you, Jim, every time with this with this Senate, I think that it's an easy, you know, bipartisan thing we should have. It ends up being turned into some kind yeah. of an ideological battle. So, I certainly hope you're right. For the good of the court and for the nation, we need to get on with it. Um, and to have give the the president the right to appoint the justice that he believes is the best qualified person to serve the nation. So because of the composition of the Supreme Court, I assume you wrote a piece for Commonwealth Magazine talking about what should happen back here at home, uh, uh, particularly if uh, uh, the likelihood of the repeal or gutting of Roe v. Wade happens come summertime. What did you talk about, Carol Rose? So, I mean, there are a number of things that we should do. I mean, first, if the court uh, overturns Roe versus Wade, whether by gutting it or by overturning it outright, which we'll probably hear in June, um, we know that it's going to be disastrous uh, for uh, women's rights and for equal rights across the country. I mean, there are now 12 states uh, with trigger bans that automatically will make it a crime to get abortion if Roe is overturned. Another 24 states are poised to pass laws that do that. Um, and so we know that you know, they're going to be across the country, state legislatures are going to move to try to reduce access to abortion rights. So I think that we in Massachusetts, really as a haven state, if you would, across the country, need to take steps um, to go even further. Now, fortunately, the state legislature in the last session um, passed the Roe Act, which uh, makes it that it won't be a crime to get abortion in Massachusetts. Um, and that's like a, a hugely important protection. And by the way, they did so over the veto of uh, Governor Baker. Yeah. But we have that protection in place. But I think we need to take steps to go even further. I mean, number one, we're going to see an uptick in people seeking uh, to come to places like Massachusetts to, to get abortions, and that's going to be expensive. So I think it's important that there be some public funding 
uh, made available. Uh, and there are already funds established. We're not talking about creating a new bureaucracy. There are already abortion funds established that would help it and ease the financial burden so that it's not just rich people who can get access to abortion care, but everybody. Uh, and second, I think we need to, you know, take steps to make sure that uh, things like contraceptive access and uh, medi medication abortions and things like that are widely available and covered by insurance. Um, so there are a lot of things that the state legislature could do to move that forward. And then beyond that, I mean, for the last six years, we keep facing threats, um, you know, by people uh, primarily from the state Republican Party to try to put a ballot initiative forward that would actually repeal the Roe Act. So I think we should consider doing what Vermont is doing uh, and what Michigan is talking about doing, which would be to actually have in our state constitution protection for bodily autonomy, for reproductive autonomy as a fundamental right so that we're not just protected by a state law or statute, we actually have that fundamental right to personal autonomy enshrined in our state constitution. So I think that's something that we should think about doing, um, and it would take four to six years to do it, but I think it's worth it because Massachusetts can really be a beacon and Beacon Hill should live up to its name and be a beacon to the rest of the country. Carol Rose, I think I've heard probably hundreds of times in the last 25 years or so that no matter what happened to Roe v. Wade at the federal level, the Massachusetts Constitution protects a woman's right to choose and we would never be denied abortion here because of that. Was that incorrect? I think that it's open to debate. I think that the state constitution says that if abortion is accessible, it has to be accessible to rich and poor alike, right? So right. you can't discriminate because somebody doesn't have is poor. I think that what we're seeing now, are, we have statutory protections, arguably constitutional protections, but we still have these people who keep trying to get signatures and going to the ballot and trying to say that they're going to threaten that right here in Massachusetts. And, you know, we are not immune from these forces. And I think it's time for us to stop always being on the defensive and to begin to play offense and to say, no, we are a safe haven state. We believe in reproductive autonomy and bodily autonomy. And we're going to have this, just like in Vermont they're doing, we're going to have a constitutional amendment that would say that we are going to protect that in our state constitution. But I guess, and, and don't leave it open for debate or interpretation. But I, anyway. So that has been wrong then, because I've heard this over, and I've heard it. No, I don't think it's been wrong. I don't think it's been wrong. I just think it could be clearer. So it's our, our constitution, you're telling me, is unclear about the rights of women to have abortion, because that's, that's kind of news to, I think, a lot of us, you know, uh, it, no, I, you know, I don't, I don't actually think it is. I mean, I think it, we repealed the old blue laws when we passed the Roe Act. Right. Um, and the state constitution. The Roe Act had to do primarily with late term abortions. Right. That's what the Roe and Act. Early, and, early, and, and early access. Right. And late term abortions when there's a fatal fetal anomaly. Right. So the, the Roe Act means that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's not automatically going to be a trigger law like it is in these 36 other states where you would lose the right right there. But a statutory protection isn't as clear as a constitutional protection. And okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, is, hold on. Is, I just want to be clear about okay. this. Either our mm -hmm. Constitution right now protects a woman's right to have an abortion or it doesn't. That's what I'm trying to nail down here. You're saying it's unclear right, and we, but, need, we need another constitutional uh, we need more constitutional action. I, I don't want to belabor this, but because, you know what I'm right. saying it either is clear or it's no, not clear. I think, 
Well, you know, Marjorie, I know that's not truly, that's not true in the law. It's never just clear or unclear. It's always open to interpretation. And what I'm suggesting is that if we were to go forward and make it very, very clear, it would signal not only to the people of Massachusetts, but to the rest of the nation that Massachusetts is a beacon and that we don't, um, that irrespective of what the Supreme Court does in Roe versus Wade, we have those protections both in statute and we also have them protected by our Constitution. Because the people who are opposed to individual personal autonomy on these issues keep trying to say they're going to go to the ballot and they're going to try to change the Constitution. And what we're saying is, no, let's go to the ballot and reaffirm. And by, reaffirm. By the so way, I think just, that's what we're talking about. When people heard Carol a minute ago say it takes four to six years, it's not for the usual reason because everything takes forever right. in the legislature. It's just to amend the Constitution. <laughs> no, but the amend the Constitution is a cumbersome process, as it should be. In, right. uh, in, but uh, the bottom line is we continue to get mass- be able to get abortions in Massachusetts no matter what the Supreme Court does as, as things that's stand correct. now. Okay. That is the just so we don't line. scare everybody to death here. No. The right is protected thanks to the work of the ACLU and uh, Ren and Planned Parenthood. We managed to pass the Roe Act, and the state legislature did so overriding Governor Baker's veto, and in so doing, protected the rights of people to right. seek abortion but, care but here it, in Massachusetts. But, we were gonna, even, even, with, but even without the Roe Act, it was in our state constitution. Well, she said it's unclear. I mean, she said this repeatedly right okay i i am uh, we'll move on because i'm totally well, if, confused if it wasn't unclear if it wasn't unclear to let even if it's even if it's even if it's even if it is in the state constitution now the efforts of people to go to the ballot and try to strip it out need to be countered uh we're talking to carol okay, rose because for the last six years for the last six years there have been efforts to try to get a ballot initiative to take that constitutional right away and we need to go on the offensive and not just be on the defensive all the time. Uh, can we talk about the legislature for a minute? Uh, you're talking about protecting Always. certain rights. Let's talk about not protecting certain voting rights. The House, uh, <laughs> uh, you can tell us they enshrined the, – the Senate had already passed their version of this Votes Act. Uh, you'll explain to us what's in this. The House, uh, because obviously uh, same-day voter registration is not working very well. That's a joke, by the way. In 20 states in D.C., has decided uh, that they would vote to send same-day registration to Bill Galvin, the Secretary of State's office. By the way, he's on TV with me tonight to uh, do a study, even though Bill Galvin supports same-day voter registration. So the assumption is the study will conclude what he's already concluded. So can you explain this this pathetic weakness on the part of the House uh, on this issue, Carol Rose? <laughs> Well, let's say the first things they did that were good. Okay, okay so they good. did pass the Votes Act. So the Senate passed it, including uh, same-day registration, um, which, as you say, exists in 20 other states um, and, and really is doable. Um, the things that were passed in both the House and the Senate bill include things like uh, widespread mail-in voting and early voting, things that we tried during the pandemic and then turned out to be wildly successful right. and increased voter participation, which is good for democracy. Uh, but the House version didn't include was either same-day registration or even election day registration. Um, and as you say, despite the fact that Secretary of State Bill Galvin says he supports it, uh, the Massachusetts Town Clerks Association supports election day registration. Um, and so it's not clear, uh, other than Governor Baker's uh, saying that he doesn't support it, 
why, who else, why the House wouldn't support it. So we're hopeful that when the bill goes to conference committee, uh, that we're going to come out with a, a combined bill, a negotiated bill for the governor to sign that would include same-day voter registration. Uh, because it's just a common-sense reform that would actually do go more than anything else that we could do, would make it easier for people to vote, and particularly people who, are, uh, who move a lot, uh, who are uh, more marginalized, who for whatever reason aren't as stable in their housing situation, that they could go and they could register uh, to vote and be a part of our democracy, because that's what is the right and patriotic thing to do. So, Carol, one other thing that would be great if you could describe to us, uh, on December 31st, there was a deadline (laughs) for the Facial Recognition Commission set up by the police reform law that was signed last year to release their recommendations. So could you describe to us in detail what those recommendations (laughs) were that were released on the date that was statutorily agreed to December 31st? What were they again? (laughs) There was nothing released on December 31st. Oh, but wait, it says Um, that's the date they were required to do it by the statute. Shocked. What happened? Well, you know, there, there's, there's law and then there's law. Oh. So, uh, you know, but, the, but the, the, the recommendations that are coming out are going to be tremendously important to make sure that this uh, technology that can actually, you know, biometric surveillance can actually track your face. And, you know, there are lots of ways you can disguise yourself, but you can't actually disguise your face because the technology can read through it. Um, and the problem is it can track you wherever you go. Um, and, and the other problem with this is, is that it's been shown through a number of tests and studies that it's really racist, that it, it, because it tests on white faces, the, the, the technology was developed on primarily white faces, it doesn't read faces of people of color very well. So you end up with false positives. It has happened, uh, where innocent people have been accused of crimes that they didn't commit because of this technology. So what we're looking for, what the commission's re- recommendations were quite good, would be to have a greater checks and balances uh, on this technology when it's used by the government, uh, and that we shouldn't rely on this technology uh, is somehow that it's uh, thinking that it's unbiased because it is biased or thinking that it is appropriate, even if it did work, to use technology to track us wherever we go. Uh, so it would require, um, you know, a, a, a standard that says that you have to be in, involved in the commission of a crime before this can be used. So it can't be used to track your ex-girlfriend or to go after your neighbor who you don't like or any kind of abuses because, you know, it's it's a wild, wild west situation if we don't have uh, – appropriate tech, uh, checks and balances. And is this is the stall, uh, I mean, where are they going? I, I assume they're stalling because they're trying to get out of doing something significant. What? Where do you project this is going to go? Oh, I think given that, because when the report actually did come out, it was overwhelmingly in favor of having checks and balances put on. So my hope is that it will be turned into a law and it will be passed in this legislative session, which ends on July 31st. So I think on that particular bill, there's at least some hope that we're going to see some movement. And um, I would be shocked if the state legislature didn't take the recommendations and go forward and then pass more protections um, for the people of Massachusetts. Can you explain one more thing to me and Marjorie? We didn't understand. We're reading this story in the state house news service about again, the failure to release their report on the date they're required to. And then the chair of the commission or some such thing uh, was one of the leaders that was recommending the commissioners not make any public comments during right. the process. And the thing I don't quite understand about this, unless I'm missing something, which is why I'm asking you, that's sort of like saying a legislator, when a bill's being considered, don't make any public comments because your thoughts are just preliminary. 
which sort of means you shouldn't talk to anybody who's trying to lobby you to get you to a particular position. What is the rationale for public officials not commenting so that their constituents can understand what the hell is going on here? I don't get this at all. You know, I, I have to tell you, I don't understand it either. But, you know, the ACLU believes in the marketplace of ideas. So um, I think that we should have open and transparent government and processes um, and that we should be having a public conversation. Um, and so I, I, I'm not going to defend that position, Jim. Um, but I do think that in the long run, what really matters is that we end up with a bill that provides the kind of protections that the people of Massachusetts have been demanding. I mean, a large number of people, I think we have something like seven or ten major cities and towns have put a ban, mm-hmm. a ban, complete ban, on the use of face surveillance technology. Uh, so what about the rest of us who don't live in those towns? Um, I think we all deserve the right to be protected from what is really uh, potentially abusive technology that can track us wherever we go and, and really opens up the, uh, you know, the way for kind of a, 1984 total surveillance society. And, and we have an opportunity now to stop it before it gets out there um, by putting in checks and balances that permit the use of the technology in appropriate circumstances. You know, when you're finding the, the lost elder person or the, the kidnapped child or something like that, you can use it in those circumstances. Or when there's a really heinous crime, you could use it. But not just to track people without any kind of checks and balances. You know what you can also use it it for, I think you should add to your list, not only missing older people or children, missing legislators. (laughs) I mean, think about the potential (laughs) when they don't go to work at the Statehouse because the Statehouse isn't open. It isn't open. The only one in the country. Can I say that, Jim? Yeah. If we did that, that would get that bill passed. <laughs> yeah, we talked to Karen Spilke, who's the Senate president, about when they were going to reopen. Didn't she think it was going to be soon? I think she said soon? hopefully next month or next something. Next month, yeah. We're the only one in the country. We, we do so many unique things we here really in this do. Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's beautiful, actually. But, you know, Carol Rose, you guys were, were very – I think you started there. You certainly were very involved in that too. great uh, What a Difference a DA Makes um, effort to really educate people that uh, may not know how powerful district attorneys are and assistant district attorneys are deciding – uh, who gets uh, charged with what and all that kind of stuff. Um, Mastout wrote a very interesting piece about what kind of uh, prosecutors do Massachusetts voters want with these DA races coming up. Uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, the most important thing is that we're having the finally having the public conversation. You know, prosecutors are the most powerful actors in our criminal legal system. Um, you know, DAs, they decide who will be detained in jail before a court date who's sent to state prison, what crimes to charge, the plea deals. We were talking about plea deals before. Um, And so a prosecutor who supports criminal legal reform is a really powerful voice for making changes to the laws and reducing mass incarceration and reducing racial disparities. Um, And and we're seeing that, you know, when Rachel Rawls was the DA here in Suffolk County, uh, you saw really interesting a decrease in uh, arrests, a decrease in crime, uh, both violent crime and property crime. Uh, and so we're seeing that when we actually, uh, as Massachusetts, you know, we can be this, uh, again, a haven, a beacon of liberty, and we try new things, and then they work. That serves as a model not only uh, for the people who live here, and it protects us and make us, makes us more safe and more free, uh, but it's a beacon to the rest of the country that we can actually build the world that we believe in. Um, you know, when, with Washington being so gridlocked right now, 
uh, and and the the momentum across the country and a lot of state legislatures really going in the wrong direction. You know, we in Massachusetts have this opportunity to really uh, create a model and a beacon as a haven state, if you would, uh, for what we want for our children and grandchildren. And I'm actually feeling very excited about uh, having uh, all the DA races. I mean, we now we're going to have a number of uh, contested races yeah. because uh, district attorneys aren't running again. Speaking of, uh, well, except some who uh, uh, are uh, the uh, uh, one of them. I know you don't endorse candidates, but one of the people who put together with you the campaign, what a difference the DA makes. I think today, correct me if I'm wrong, your colleague is announcing that he's challenging the sitting Plymouth County DA, Rasan Hall, right? Yeah, that's right. My former colleague, he former stepped away co- from the ACLU. Yeah, because he, he led our racial justice program for six years, did an amazing job, both in terms of the voter education work we did around the role of prosecutors and also on voting rights and any number of things. Uh, but he stepped away because he's uh, going to be running for the DA in Plymouth County. Uh, but again, the ACLU, we don't endorse candidates. Um, we don't take a position. What we do is to encourage voters to pay attention, to understand that DAs report to them, to us, the voters, and not to anybody else. Uh, and what a difference that they make in the lives of all of us. You know, by the way, before you go, uh, I don't know if you have these these numbers handy in your head, but one of the things that really impressed me about that campaign of yours beyond its broad reach is the polling you did at the beginning of it three years ago, is that an infinitesimally small percentage of people knew what discretionary power, what huge discretionary power DAs had, if, correct me if I'm wrong, and right. a very small number of people even knew that they were elected to begin with, I assume, because so many of those races are uncontested. I'm right about both things, aren't I? You are right. It's like 89% of people, I think it was, uh, didn't know that DAs were elected. That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And the power that they had. And we saw an increase in some of the races. I'm thinking out in the Berkshires. We saw a 30% increase in people voting on the down ballot on DA races uh, once they began to become educated and involved and understanding. So this is the power of democracy at work. You know, democracy is a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it gets. And that's all for the good. Carol, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Carol Rose is executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Okay, coming up. Tens of thousands of black women and girls go missing every year. Alexandria Anoa argues it's a crisis of missing black women in Massachusetts. She's director of political advocacy for Black Boston, a nonprofit focusing on fighting injustice and creating community among Boston's black community. She is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan and Jim Bradley. Does Massachusetts and America actually have a crisis when it comes to missing black women and girls? Alexandria Anoa writes in a recent piece for Commonwealth Magazine that part of the problem lies in how we collect our data. But part of it also has to do with how the media drives our attention or not. She joins us now to discuss Alexandria is the director of political advocacy for Black Boston. That's a nonprofit focused on fighting injustice and creating community in Boston's black community. Alexandria, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. And these stories that you've highlighted are just, I mean, crazy. But before we get into um, that, what is is, uh, Black Boston? What is it? 
Yes. Black Boston was founded uh, May 2020 um, by Black college-age women, and we decided that we wanted to stand in solidarity with the people of Minneapolis, so George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all of the other Black lives that were lost. And we found it crucial to also understand that um, policing and the way policing is done in Boston needs to be fixed. Um, So we organized a march to the state house advocating for police reform and not just police reform, but also understanding that black Bostonians are part of Boston history um, and really trying to uh, tackle different issues. And now we are a nonprofit organization and we do educational programming, um, outreach, civic work, and we're just going to grow and grow. And we hope that we get to um, engage youth politically. And that is a part of my role as a director of political advocacy. Well, Alexandria, it's not the only thing you're advocating for, too. We, uh, I'm sure everybody listening uh, knows the term that uh, Gwen Ifeld popularized, missing white women's syndrome, and obviously yeah. came most into play recently with Gabrielle Petito, which was a 24-7 story all over America. But you wrote a really compelling piece about the lack of attention to missing black girls and women uh, from the consciousness of most and the media, people who do what we do at times, I think we as well are to blame. Lay out your concerns and begin to touch on some solutions that you uh, uh, proposed as well, if you would. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I want to start off by saying that Black girls and women are deserving of love light. And I think that's what I started with in the op-ed. And we have been socialized to believe that it is, it is okay to infiltrate the spaces Black women and girls occupy just to confirm our stereotypes about them, which is unconscionable. And I think there are so many ideas. And when we think about the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, who was a legal scholar um, in intersectionality, really assessing what are the interlocking systems of oppression that are hindering the development of Black girls. And I think um, for Boston, like Massachusetts in general, we do have a data problem. And I offered in the op-ed, and I still today will say that we need a separate task force. We need a separate task force to protect Black women and girls and other young girls of color. Um, Legislative measures and data collection that account for racial gender disparities of missing persons in Massachusetts is needed. And I do not believe that we have introduced legislation in the State House that actively is addressing this issue. Um, Our Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley has done a fantastic job of introducing the Crown Act, which is... um, making sure that Black women and girls are not being discriminated against on their hairstyles in school or being punished for wearing their natural hair. And I think that that is one of many steps in promoting the development of Black women and girls. And I'm saying that we also need to have a separate task force to address human trafficking and missing Black girls, because those issues are inextricably linked. Um, And I think we need to start having that task force and also equitable media coverage. Um, When we think about Gabby Petito, um, there was an abundant amount of articles and op-eds written. And we are not get we are not seeing that for, for black women and girls. And Gabby Petito and her family deserves that. And black women 
black women and girls deserve that spotlight as well. Um, you know, so- if I can interrupt you for a second, the thing, one of the things that came so clear beyond the discriminatory treatment based upon color of skin of a missing woman or girl in the Petito situation, I don't know about you, Marjorie or Alexandria, the fact that the press not only covered that to the exclusion of almost everything else, yeah. but kept referring to her by her first name well, as if we all had and, an intimate you know, connection. And, you know, talking about the, the missing white woman syndrome, I mean, this has happened over and over again. You may be too young to remember Na- uh, Natalie Holloway, who of was course. another really good-looking blonde that was supposedly eaten by a shark, and Aruba, actually, I think her boyfriend murdered her. Gabby Petito, another really good-looking young uh, blonde woman um, that we were obsessed with in the media, which is still, not coincidentally, run mostly by white men. And and But tell us the story of, of Cheryl Pringle of Woburn. Cheryl. Sherelle, excuse yeah, me, Sherelle okay. Pringle of Woburn. Um, this is a story that got l- very little coverage. We saw a few stories in the Boston Globe, but very little coverage. What was the story there? Yeah, so Sherelle Pring- Pringle, and she was a black woman from Woburn who was found missing. And I think her son um, reported that she went missing. Um, and she was on a, I believe she was out. I don't know if it was, I'm not particularly sure the actual, um, setting, but she was out with a loved one and, um, she ended up missing. And then was later, her body was found dead. And I also want to acknowledge the work that our representative Liz Miranda has been doing around that case and uplifting. Um, that is a story that touches, a lot of hearts, especially black women, because this is something that it's like we get like these articles and there's social media posts every day. And then there's no investigation. There's no follow up. And then what's the result is a, a life is lost. Um, and Can this I stop is just- you, Alexander, just a second. I don't want to leave this Pringle thing for a minute. Let me read to you two things. You mentioned the, the sun. The, the, here's a quote from Mass Live. The family found her phone Sunday in Lynn and traced the route into the marshy area on Tuesday morning where they found Pringle's purse, then her body several feet away, according to NECN. Her son is interviewed on NECN. Listen to this quote. Yeah. We did everything ourselves. You think the police mm. found her? We found her. The family of Sherelle Pringle traced and found their dead mother, sibling, yeah. child, uh, it's just, it is, it, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yes, I agree. It is unbelievable. And I also, and you bring up an excellent point about Black women and girls, the organizers in Boston, in Massachusetts, are usually the ones that have to fight for our freedom, our liberation. And that's why I really think that it is time for elected officials to to start helping. This is not a one person issue. This is a collective issue. This is communities and black women have been doing this since the test of time. In my op-ed, I talked about how Massachusetts has strong organizing roots. The Combi Collective was formed in Boston and it was, they were formed they, and their, their coalition was built off of acknowledging that there are interlocking systems of oppression. And I think we need to get back to that. And I, and I encourage elected officials to really take that document from the Combahee River Collective and implement that into policy. Like, how do we actually shift the conversation to really focus on centering Black women and girls? And I agree with you in that at this point, Black families... Well, are going to do whatever they need to do, but it is it, it is the responsibility of the elected officials to also have this investig have investigations like these 
to progress and so that we can find justice, but not just justice. Justice also looks like um, having spaces and ecosystems that are safe for Black women and girls. So this is a whole idea of developing Black women and girls and promoting their well-being and bolstering their well-being. Um, But I agree with you that it should not be on Black families, Black women and girls to fight for their own oppression. And it it is a shame. and And I'm very disheartened by the fact that the family had to do that work. Um, and it just speaks to the level um, of disrespect. Mm-hmm. Well, the, this the, the the case the this case that you just mentioned in Woburn is is obviously not unusual. There was another case we read about today, uh, a young woman named Lauren Smith Fields, twenty three yeah. years old, out uh, on 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 a date in her apartment with a a thirty seven year old white man. She's black, he's white, and. Uh, she's found dead again by the landlord, apparently, the next day. Uh, they think it was an accidental drug overdose. They're still doing an investigation. But as mm. somebody pointed out in the story from the New York Times, if let's reverse this. If this yeah. were a 23-year-old white woman with a 37-year-old black guy, mm. I don't think that the family would have had to call the police themselves and beg from the detective who has now been under investigation and is in trouble himself, but beg them for information about what happened yes. to this young woman. Yeah. Yes. And that story touches me as well. I'm 24. Um, and that could be me. That could be any of my family. That could be any of my friends. And it's, again, goes back to this idea about, you know, black girls are seen as hypersexual in a way that, in a way that isn't in, in a way that invites devaluation from others characteristics about black girls and women based on a cultural stereotype that doesn't see black girls as children um, and doesn't see black women as valuable as well. So when we have these cultural stereotypes because of social media and because of uh, digital media and film, it presents this idea that it has deleterious consequences for the, the health of black women. So in the case of um, Lauren Smith Fields, again, um, the fact that she is a black woman, the fact that she is younger. And I also want to say that the photos that they chose to, um, you know, the photos that they chose to present her is also telling too, you know, versus the photos of the white man. You know, he was hiking, he had his backpack. But for her, she, they decided to show to show photos of her in more, um, you know, uh, provocative clothing, mm-hmm. which is her business. And she's able to do that. But we have to really start to see what certain media outlets are piecing together to create a story that justifies um, or that gives a rationale for us to not care about black women and girls. We're talking to Alexandria Anoa. Just one she thing. is the director of political advocacy for Black Boston. Just one thing that Lauren Smithfield story. I couldn't believe that the cops were talking about um, the guy she was with may have been a nice guy, but it seemed a little premature for them to jump to the conclusion that he was a great guy. I, I, again, you should explain. That's how they described him to the family. As that's a, quote, how they nice described him to the family. And they were on a date. And uh, yeah. he claims that he called the police when he noticed she was not breathing. But it it would, would warrant an investigation, yeah. it seems to yeah. me, a little bit more. Exactly. Than, yeah. Exactly. You bring up a great point. It's 
it's again, this cultural stereotype. It's like, who is who? And I said this in my op-ed, who is soft? Who is, who is nice? And all these different characteristics are labeled um, on black women. Then they're labeled on black men as well. And as a society, we internalize that and we are socialized to believe that, which here we are. You know, in addition to the sort of invisibility, for lack of a better expression, of black women and girls vis-a-vis what you're talking about, Alexandria, there was a great piece last October in the the Washington Post by a woman by the name of Julia Jordan Zachary, in which she talks about, you know, on one hand, it's invisibility, but on other days, it's hyper-visibility. And what she's talking about, I'll read you a paragraph Others have looked at hypervisibility in which black women are both disproportionately visible and associated with negative stereotypes that mark black women as deviant and requiring increased surveillance. We see this with black girls who are often treated as adults in the school system, and we've discussed this before, and punished at disproportionately high rates. Obviously, you've seen that as well. Yes, for sure. And I think for the listeners, please read um, Monique Morris. Morris's work. Um, She is the author of Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. And she really talks about um, this kind of educational disparity. And again, when we look at the cultural stereotype and when we look at the characteristics that are placed on Black girls, it seemed as deviant, seemed as, um, you know, not complying or being rebellious. But you don't, the thing is like, educators and other people that are viewing black girls are not black girls are not given the same the same um care the same grace how about asking what social supports do you need how can i help you maybe something happened to you on the subway this morning someone made you upset you know and we really have to start treating black girls and black women as people and i think um i really want our elected officials and i really want our elected officials to talk about the data, like how that is important. Um, Rachel Rollins has talked about um, data pertaining to a lot of different issues. And I think this one uh, warrants that as well. We're talking to Alexandria Anoha, Director of Political Advocacy for Black Boston. It's fighting injustice and creating community in Boston's Black community. You know, I'm just thinking back as you're talking about these assumptions of, of uh, about sexuality in young uh, Black girls and young women. I remember the R. Kelly case. We learned during the course of his trial that yeah. his his basically his buddies going to local high schools recruiting these yeah. young girls. It was an open secret for apparently for a long time. People knew about it. Yes, and failed to act. Yes, I I appreciate that you raised that, and it makes me also tie in community supports as well. So when I think about like if I think as a as a researcher, I'm always thinking about theories and models. But if I think about kind of like black black girls at the center and what is around it, it's elected officials, it's historical trauma, it's communities. And with communities also comes the people in our own racial group as well and holding them accountable. I think that, again, black girls um, are subject to predatory behavior from people that look like them as well. So we have ra- we have race and gender inequalities within that entire context. Um, and reflecting on the R. Kelly situation, it's unfortunate that um, because of power and because of, because he's a man, um, that people did not feel the need that they should protect black women and black girls. Vi- if he's visibly visiting high schools. 
Um, and he's visibly saying things in his music and we're not paying attention to it because we like it. And we're afraid of cancel culture. We are doing a disservice to black women and girls. So I think it's elected officials, but it's an entire community as well. If we want to promote the well-being and wellness of black girls and women. By the way, one of our colleagues just alerted us to the fact that uh, newly, uh, inaugurated Rachel Rollins as U.S. attorney will be with us on Monday. We'll bring this up. I have one last thing. You know, you talk a lot about data collection, which obviously is hugely important in almost anything, because if you don't have the facts in front of you, it's hard to develop a policy. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm sure you are. I didn't know about this till this morning when Marjorie and I were talking in anticipation of you coming. There's this journalist, I think in California, I'm not sure, Erica Marie Rivers, who on her own, has collected all this stuff. It's called Our Black Girls. If you yes. Google that, can you spend a second and talk about the incredible work? This one woman show, no support, no nothing, one woman yeah. band. Can you just describe what she's doing uh, in yeah. right now? Yeah, so she is creating a database, but I will be honest, I'm more familiar with, um, there's, another, there's another woman that is organizing a Washington, D.C. march on Black femicide and Also, that includes Black missing girls. And she's doing something very similar. I have heard of that name, but I will say it goes back to what you were saying about Black women and girls organizing and doing this work themselves, like doing the database themselves. You know, let me just say one thing about it, because I went to the website. People should check it out, Our Black Girls. And the, the beauty of this, you know, it's analogous to that I can think of is that our friend Alex Goldstein has done this Faces of COVID Twitter account where he has done, you know, we all know how these people died. We don't often know, unless we're close to them, how they lived. And one of the things that this Rivers does terrifically well is not only do, and obviously it's not comprehensive, but it's as best she can, this this database, but also tells you a little bit about the lives of these women. So they're not just another, you know, statistic. Uh, yeah. And it's it's really quite powerful. So check it out. Yeah, thank you, Jim. And I also want to add that, um, for data, that's an excellent point, too, because for me, like num- numerical representations, that is my argument. I will definitely want numerical representations because it allows us to address problems. But also that qualitative piece of that narrative yeah. is important to, to tie it together. Alexandria, one last question for me. We started this talking about the brilliant journalist um, that was on television for many years right here at PBS, Gwen Ifill, and the missing white women's syndrome. But I'm wondering, and it, uh, it sounds to me like this is a fairly new movement, looking at the disparities of treatment between women of color and white women when they disappear, particularly when they're good-looking blondes that disappear. It sounds like this is uh, fairly recent, and I'm wondering – what happened to to uh, get that sort of movement going? Yeah, I will say that I don't I don't think it's new. I don't think it's new. I think black women and girls that are doing grassroots work that I work with have been talking about it. It's just that it doesn't get coverage. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to approach media with an equity lens. I think, you know, we've been talking about it. We've been posting about it. Black Boston. We had a campaign last April. Um uh, I believe 2020, actually, um, we had a we had a campaign and it was called Boost Black Girls. And it was literally this exact op ed, but in a campaign. It's like talk to call Mara Healy, talk to the Human Trafficking Center, talk, talk to the Child Justice Unit. It was all of these different things. There was action steps for our community to take. So we've been talking about it. 
And that's why I'm super, I was super excited to talk today because we really need to start talking about it more explicitly so that our elected officials can keep up with us because community organizers have been doing the work. We just needed our elected officials to keep up with us. We're really glad to meet well, you. And we're really glad for your work. We appreciate it, Alexandria. Yeah. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much for your points. I enjoyed this conversation. Oh, we did too. Thank, thank you. you so and much. shame on us for not having covered this as well uh-huh. as we should. Thank you, Alexandria. For we'll have you back. back. Okay. Take Thank care. So Bye. Alexandra Noha is the director of the Political Advocacy for Black Boston, a nonprofit focused on fighting injustice and creating community in Boston's black community. Coming up, what happens when restaurants get rid of their landlines? Oh, my God. Food policy writer Corby Kummer joins us to discuss that and more in the world of food. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. Restaurants are struggling during the pandemic, short-staffed and on the front lines of vaccine and mask mandate drama. So why are some of them cutting the cord, so to speak, on their phone lines? One of the easiest ways to connect to their customers. Corby Cummer joins us now to discuss. He's the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute. We'll talk about them in a minute. Senior editor at The Atlantic, senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Hello, Corby Cummer. Good afternoon. Hey. Yeah, hello, Kerry Cameron. Well, I I don't really understand why they're c- uh, cutting their phone lines. I have noticed if you if you book a reservation online, when we do go out to restaurants these days, they're always calling you back to make sure you're showing up. You know, that, <laughs> that day. So so what's going on? Maybe they're calling from their cell phones. I don't know, Corby. They're lazy, sloppy, and nasty. <laughs> that is completely how it seems. An outsider. But this New York Times article quoted a number actually outside of New York City who were saying, look, I'm running a restaurant. I have barely any staff right now. I got to go out and do the shopping. I got to set up. I don't have much staff right now. I can't answer your niggling questions over the phone. What was odd about this story, which did bring up a legitimate concern, staff time, paying staff to just answer the phone, often waste of time calls is They were saying, you can find us by instant messaging us on Instagram, as if that was the most natural form of communication in the world. It isn't necessarily. There are ways around renting a separate phone line, always having somebody on a shift answer it. I would say it's by uh, giving people the ability to send you text messages. You don't want to answer the phone. You don't want to be nice over the phone. At least answer a text. And they could just have one cell phone, one family line on a large plan and have one person per shift answer text messages if they don't want to pay somebody to just be answering the phone. I'm so glad you said that because I think they're screwing themselves, too. too. I mean, I understand the staffing issue and you have to pay an extra person to do it. But if you integrate it into the mix, 
you're cutting out a lot of people's access, particularly if your website is down or you're an older person who doesn't do Instagram or whatever. I'm really glad you said that because I am with you. You know, speaking of uh, the uh, well, well, it's not just that. If something happens with your reservation, don't you want to be able to call them and tell them I can't come? What if you've been waiting weeks for this table reservation and the subway won't come? Yeah. Don't you want to be able to say, don't give my table away, please? Or, or you wanted to give them a chance to give your table away if um, if something has happened or someone gets sick or whatever. I, I don't, what is this going to be like a dueling thing with you and Corby about reasons that we agree? <laughs> they should have a phone line. End of discussion. Okay, Jim. Jim is telling us we have, can't talk about this anymore. Phone line. We We're all to, in we favor of phone lines. We have to move on. All right. You know, let me, speaking of moving on, there are a couple of, you know, Restaurateurs are becoming op-ed writers these days, too. What's the name of the guy who uh, owns one of my favorite places in uh, Provincetown? Now, not only can I not think of his name, I can't think of the name of the place I love. That's good. You're doing well. On the beach. But he wrote this great piece in The Atlantic, and we talked to him at the beginning of the pandemic. He said, you know, I'm a restaurateur. I'm not an epidemiologist and a this and a that. Will Gilson, who owns, I guess, four restaurants now, including the Puritan in Lexington and Boston in Cambridge, Gabrielle O'Malley from Plow and Stars. Rob Anderson from the Canteen. Thank you, Jamie. Rob, I knew it was Anderson. I was going to say Chris Anderson. No, Thank you. Rob, is, he's a great writer and a great guy, and the Canteen's one of my writer. favorite places on the planet. But Gabrielle O'Malley, who was with us, I guess, last week from Plow and Stars, both wrote pieces, I think both in the Globe. I'm not sure. One in the magazine, one in the Globe. Basically uh, describing yet again the plight of these restaurateurs, particularly in the age of Omicron. Forget the pandemic in general. And, you know, both touch on the fact and I assume you would know, what is the status of this effort to refund the Restaurant Revitalization Act? It was $30 billion in it out of Congress the first time. Correct me if I'm wrong, Corby. Three times as many restaurants which were eligible applied then got it. Only a third of the restaurants got it. It was a lifeline for those that did. O'Malley makes the point, no rhyme or reason why one restaurant as opposed to a competitor got it and another didn't. Is Congress going to do the right thing and fund the next $60 billion that these restaurants are looking for? I mean, it's millions of workers. Forget everything else. Why don't you ask Senator Warren, who I hope is a frequent guest on this program. She had a listening session in Cambridge last Tuesday that was held by, um, gosh. The Mass Restaurants was, United. That's what Mass Restaurants United. But yeah. Steve Postal, uh, who owns Commonwealth and Revival Cafe, gave the space to um, an, an as-yet-unopened restaurant that's going to open. And it was a lot of restaurant people saying, hey, what is it with this administration? They promised us something, but more than just complaining, they're advocating for 60 more billion in federal aid to the depleted restaurant revitalization fund. This was going to and try to fund. um, And, you know, the problem with the messy rollout and it was really messy and it turned everything into a lottery was that the Biden administration wanted to prioritize restaurants owned by women, people of color. I forgot about that. And veterans. They were supposed to be at the head of the line. And then a bunch of white, non-minority, non-women males like affirmative action challenged us and said, how dare you? I'm a struggling business man, too. Give me the money. Unfortunately, the challenges were upheld, but it put the whole thing into disarray and chaos. And the Small Business Administration, which had the best of intentions, was uh, didn't know quite what to do. And the problem was, and this is an unbelievable irony, 
that many of the restaurants that were supposed to be at the end of the line for some quirk got put at the head of the line and and rejected, but suddenly they were in and the money went out, whereas a lot of restaurants that had been approved were held in abeyance in limbo and then the fund ran out of money. Did you mention this Will Gilson piece, the numbers that he offered? Oh, no, not numbers, no. This is really staggering. Across the country, 58% of restaurants that lost more than half, they lost more than half their sales in December because of Omicron. 49% that did not receive these recovery grants were forced to lay off staff. 28% face eviction and 42% face bankruptcy. So this is a real... Uh, a real emergency, Corby Cummer. It's really, it's really terrible. And Gabriel O'Malley has similar things to say. In fact, it might be his very piece. We have very concerned local restaurateurs. Yeah, and that was an independent restaurant coalition survey. But one of the Omicron stories that everyone's ignoring because they've had it with the pandemic is restaurants are doing worse than they have since the very first months of lockdown. They need help. Uh, so, Corby Kummer, on another matter, we always have these stories about drinking. You know, should you drink one glass concerning. of wine a day, no glasses of wine a day? Is moderate drinking uh, good for you? Well, apparently, according to the Washington Post, moderate drinking defined as one or two drinks a day is not good for us. So where are we now? Well, here's the thing. I knew you were going to be very personally upset by this story. <laughs> so I've been waiting for your take. So the great Washington Post monthly columnist Tamar Haspel, who is contrarian, reads data, expresses it beautifully. I love reading Tamar. So she was saying, you know, I've been reading for years, a couple drinks a day. It's actually better for you. Um, She comes up with a great point. There are new ways of looking at this data. It's not that it's necessarily bad for you, Marjorie. This is the good news. It's just not good for you. There's (laughs) no association between better health. And the fascinating point at the end of it, which sort of strikes you over the head when you think of it is the reason moderate drinking might be associated with improved health is because moderate drinkers are able to moderate everything else they do, like exercise and smoking and (laughs) diet quality. They're prudent people. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense, though, doesn't it? I mean, it does. It does, but I want to focus on what you said a minute ago, because this is one where the headline doesn't match the story. Tamar Haspel, I know she's a friend of yours, so whatever. So so she buries at the end of the story what you just said. The headline in nine-tenths of the story is despite what you've read and hoped was true, moderate drinking is not good for you. And then buried at the end is, but there's some good news, is not bad for you either. I mean, when you read the story, you're saying, oh, my God, you know, this is going to shorten my life. I have a glass and I have wine every night. The bottom line is, according to Haspel, it's a new, it's a wash essentially. Is that not a fair characterization? The of problem piece? is, it's not really responsible for all those good things about you. And if you are an Ashkenazi Jew, you might have one of many gene variants that makes it unpleasant to drink or gives you problems digesting and absorbing alcohol. So that might be a natural curb on your desire to drink. Well, Corby, in general, I mean, I'm very suspicious of all these kinds of stories because it, it goes back and forth. You know, coffee gonna be is bad for you. No, coffee's not bad for you. No, butter is bad. Go to margarine. Then margarine's bad. Go back to butter. And, you know, all it, it, it seems to cha- flux, I would say. I'm glad you brought up coffee because when I was researching my book, The Joy, the Joy of, of Coffee, coffee that's we right. know, just yeah. about to ask me about, <laughs> um, I went through 312 <laughs> articles on caffeine. 
And one of the main points of the constant up and down articles about coffee is studies, uh, most notoriously a Boston-based study on pancreatic cancer and coffee, the actual confounding factor was smoking, that the high coffee drinkers were smokers. It was smoking that was causing the increased predisposition toward pancreatic cancer. Haspel doesn't come up with that kind of smoking. It was something else all the time piece here. She just does a lot. First of all, she criticizes observational studies, which are very different from direct causal studies. But in any case, doesn't always worry about confounding factors. And Marjorie, you can still drink a glass of wine, but don't think it's protecting you. Just don't worry about it harming you. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about what you guys have been doing at the Aspen Institute, this food is medicine initiative. I like this. I'm glad you do because it's been two years of work. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a national movement right now. The, it is try, first of all, we're defining in the, in the Aspen Institute and center for health law and policy innovation at Harvard law school, along with Tufts Friedman, which were important co-authors of this two year long effort. Um, when, National heroes like Representative Jim McGovern, who came to our launch event last Thursday and was so right on in every point he made about the government needing to help reduce hunger and increase health through food. The way we're defining food as medicine is if your doctor or healthcare system refers you to a local agency like Community Servings to say, you need their services, you qualify for home-delivered meals called medically tailored meals right now. Um, it, the relation between healthcare and food is what we're defining as food as medicine. It could be produce prescriptions. It could be medically tailored meals and community servings. There's a national group of agencies that uh, community services has been very instrumental in helping train and being a part of that give these medically tailored meals depending on whether it's HIV, diabetes, kidney disease, different forms of cancer. They all help and be and can be protected. But when people like Jim McGovern go to the government and say, hey, let's have more reimbursement for it, more Medicaid money, especially Medicare, but especially Medicaid money, reimbursing meals, the agencies say, hey, where's the research? The research is right here in our Food is Medicine Research Action Report, which takes every peer-reviewed study that's ever been done on this movement and says, here's what they found, here's what the study sample was, and at the end we have 26 recommendations for what future studies should do to increase the data that will result in more money from the government and from healthcare systems to fund these meals programs because they reduce money down the road through hospitalizations, through chronic illness care. It's a huge money saver, but politicians, as you know on this show, don't think in terms of what are the benefits in 10, 20 years. They think, what's going to get me elected yeah. next year? Yeah. So how do, people get this? how do people get this thing, uh, Corby? Uh, they go to Food is Medicine, Aspen Institute, and they'll, they'll download it. We have an executive summary. We're going to have different launch events. We're very excited that the National Institutes for Health, which for us is the big kahuna. Why? Because they fund most of the research in this country. So if they use the equity principles, the wider application to uh, of our recommendations for future studies, 
we could really see a lot more reimbursement down the road for these healthful meals. You know, I have just an overall question. We always talk about how Americans have an obesity problem. A lot of us are really overweight. When you see things on, on television, some newsreels of people like in the 50s or the 60s, um, everybody was thin. So what happened, you know, between the 70s and 80s and now? I don't really know when people started to have obesity problems, but I certainly know we do now. Fast food. Was that it? I mean, was that what happened? Well, speaking of confounding variables and studies, Marjorie, why are you throwing this into the discussion? Only because food has been a cause of all these chronic diseases? (laughs) That we're trying to help. And I should also add that I would not have spent the last two years if the Walmart Foundation had not funded us. I've got to thank my funder. They've been unbelievably generous. What made us all obese? Why this? There's no really good reason, but it's the increased availability of not so helpful food for cheap, partly because of government subsidies of things like corn, but mostly because the price of food came down for big fast food uh, restaurants and companies to give you. So portion sizes ballooned, prices came down, people ate unhealth-promoting food in huge quantities for not much money, and they became huge. Do you ever worry, I know Marjorie and I do, with the obesity rate in this country, and I can say this as someone who's been heavy off and on in my life, do you ever worry the United States is going to sink? Have you ever (laughs) thought about that as a... Maybe not. Okay, now when I get back. No, I have to get back to promoting my report. Thank you. Now, well, here's what I want to say. Speaking of uh, stuff that Corby's responsible for, a friend of mine just texted to about two minutes ago. Said, "Are copies of the Joy of Coffee still available?" Now, while as Marjorie knows, I am boycotting Amazon for at least a week, and today's day four. Mm-hmm. I'm not buying this, but I did look on Amazon. The hardcover version is $39.38. Nobody wants to pay, including I'm not me. done yet. The paperback version is $16.99. However, since there are always more buying choices, used copies of Joy of Coffee are available, and one of them is available for... Thirty-seven cents. Oh, so if you want to say forty-nine cents, okay. thirty-seven cents. Then <laughs> enjoy your coffee. Should conduct a lottery for who can get the lower price. I have to go back to something you said What's about up? being an obese child. I didn't say I was obese. obese. I was heavy. All right. Okay. Having a that goes back to the idea that people can change and they're responsible for. You know, you ate too much of Grossinger's when you were a waiter and the food was free and you were swiping it. That's true. Um, that I was, was individual. That was individual behavior. One of the main points of our food is medicine initiative is you have to change the default conditions in society. That's what public health does. So until people have access to more health promoting foods, they're going to be overweight for reasons that are not their fault. Okay. I agree with that. Okay, Corby Kummer. Uh, where are we going? Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I hate to touch on this with such little time, but let's do it and maybe continue. There's a really interesting piece about food waste. We've discussed food waste a lot with you in this country. They talk about the climate change impacts. You can talk about that if you choose. And obviously, with so many people who are hungry in this country, it's a disgrace. What, is, what I don't understand, to cut through this mess, has anybody ever proposed Jim McGovern, for example, who is, as we agree with you, no one walks the walk literally on this issue better than Jim McGovern. We can ask him, too. Has anyone ever proposed some sort of entity that talks about redistribution of food that is produced uh, so that 
it can hopefully more of it get, and I, I'm not talking about the wonderful food banks. Obviously, they do great work. But when you read about the volume of wasted, tossed food in this country, is, isn't the Aspen Institute doing something? What do we do about this, Corby Kummer? Um, I'll tell you, places like Rethink New York are getting uh, food that was not going to be used elsewhere, bringing it to local restaurants, having the rest, paying the restaurants to use this food to produce very simple family style meals, and then shipping it out to homeless shelters and local meals for the aging. That's a great model that different cities are adopting. There are a million different small solutions to this. Rockefeller Foundation and Tufts Friedman and others have done a lot of work on um, food waste and how to try to uh, reduce it. But you know, it should really be national. There should be one agency, exactly. which is part, part of our food and society, food and benefit <laughs> initiative. Corby keeps holding it up like people are watching him. That rules everything and says, okay, here's the studies that are going to go out. Here's the laws about nutrition and regulation. You can't get everything passed, but if you don't have a whole assortment of agencies trying to help the same problem, it would really help to have one agency doing it. We all hope there's going to be a 50th anniversary White House conference on nutrition. One of the main ideas that will be discussed is how can we consolidate all the federal agencies that have something to do with food and regulation into one nutrition agency? By the way, President Trump plans to do that in 2025. It's going to be held at a Taco Bell. So that'll and be. Uh, you have originated the idea, Jim. Thank you for putting that into his head. And by the way, let's get this since we're out of time next week. Let's talk about the climate change impacts of this food waste and the impact food waste or lack of concern about food waste has on the lives of farm animals, millions and millions of which are killed unnecessarily. So, I mean, there's so many angles on this story. Corby, it's good to see you. Congratulations on the food is medicine thing. Yeah, I'm excited about that, and Corby. And we'll talk more about it in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Corby Cummer is the Executive Director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, which we've talked a lot considerably during our segment today. He's also a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior lecturer at Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. How many times has he invited you to the Aspen Institute? Never. Never. Never, yeah. <laughs> How often do we have him on the show? <laughs> A lot. Every week. Do you feel do you feel left out, Chip? Well, I mean, isn't there supposed to be a two way street? He comes here, we go to the Aspen Institute. Or not, actually, in our case. Okay. We don't get invited anywhere, actually. We don't right? get invited anywhere. We Jim. invite all these people in, they yep. come in, and the appropriate thing is, would you like to come to our place? The Aspen Institute, the whatever. It's an outrage. Yeah. All I can say is Marjorie got into a club and I didn't. <laughs> And Marjorie's invited to a special thing, and I'm not. Not that that is upsetting to me. I'm not going to go into details. I'm not going to name names. Thank you. Just going to say. Up next. I got screwed. CNN's John King joins us for the latest national political headlines. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Margie Egan joining us now as CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics. That, of course, would be Dorchester's own John King. Hi, John. 
Happy Tuesday. And to you. Well, we're going to start with a sports story today because we know you're a Dorchester kid. And uh, Tom Brady, of course, has announced that he is indeed retiring. There was a speculation about it for a couple of days. We talked about it with listeners. Encountered an unsurprising amount of hostility towards Tom Brady when we opened up the lines, as we are going to do again after you leave. But uh, what's your take on the Tom Brady uh, two-decade career? I have I have only uh, thanks and no hostility towards the goat, and he is the goat, uh, and uh, and he just finally his I was a little uh, alarmed, a little annoyed, I guess, that his first statement, nine hundred and something words, did not say anything about his Patriots career. Yes, I thought that was kind of a diss, but he did just post on social media a few minutes ago, uh, thank you to Patriot Nation with a big heart. Uh, so he's he's fixed that one up. Too late. Look, this guy, if you. If you think, oh come on, Jim. Uh, if you think back, if, if you think back to the, if you think back to those days, I mean, you know, as a New England sports fan, um, you know, he was our Moses, if you will, and, and uh, that began. Think about he led the Patriots out of the wilderness, but think he about did. what happened. They win the Super Bowl. They win the Super Bowl in two thousand two. Then the Sox break the curse in two thousand four. Uh, the Celtics had a championship in two thousand eight. That became a decade of just wow in Boston sports, and and the unlikely story that a sixth round draft choice. You know, most sixth-round draft choices don't hang in the league for two years, uh, three years, right? So that this kid came out of Michigan and gets a break when Bledsoe gets injured and then goes on, you know, look at all the records. I mean, seven Super Bowl wins, six of them with the Patriots, career passing yards, career playoff appearances. I mean, it's just it's just indisputable that he's the greatest football player of all time, and you could make an argument that he's one of the greatest professional athletes of all time. You know, John, I don't know if you were busy preparing for your show this morning or if you were watching your own station. Marjorie and I were in the studio preparing for the show at about, I don't know, 10 o'clock or something, right after his Instagram post came out. And we had two stations. We had a local station on, which was obviously doing Brady nonstop. I have never seen CNN focus on one story other than some, you know, horrible international crisis for as long as CNN, a national network, focused on Tom Brady. Does that surprise you about how big – I understand how big it is here and in Florida. Did that surprise you or no? Uh, no, I, I do think, look, like it or not, and some people listening do not like it, and I understand that and I respect that, but look at NFL ratings. Uh, NFL yeah, a is point. a sport that does it, – it, it, you know, NFL gets interest. It's not just guys. You know, it, it's not just guys drinking beer uh, who watch football. Um, you know, for for whatever reason, uh, and uh, and so it, and and look, this, you could take the sports out of it. Here is a guy who excelled at his craft for 22 years, who got better as he aged, um, who at 44 years old, you know, was the best or one of the top two or three people at his position. You know, who won a Super Bowl. You know, at a time you're supposed to be sort of on the back arc, the you know the back end of the arc. Um, he kept getting better. So at beyond sports, I think he's a remarkable story. Uh, and so he gets into pop culture. Um, he has learned how to communicate in the social media world. Sometimes he remember sometimes with the Patriots and the Belichick way, they want to communicate at all. And then suddenly he's become more of a personality in later years. So, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, again, the popularity of football, the fact that he is the greatest era uh, ever, uh, the fact that, you know, he has a, um, a wife who's also an international figure. Yeah. I mean, Giselle is an you know, international supermodel and incredibly successful businesswoman in her own right. So there's, a, there's just a lot of pieces to it, I think, that make him – uh, he's an athlete, but he's also a celebrity. He is. So let's go from uh, the too perfect. That was, the, that was some of the complaint from people. That was just too perfect. I kind of jealousy, like, right? Yeah, jealousy. You know, I mean, 
most of us don't look like Tom. And no, we, we don't. don't. Look like, like Giselle, Giselle. No, we don't. Exactly. So, John, can we move <laughs> my, from my bank, account, my bank account doesn't look like Tom. <laughs> right. That is true. So, uh, uh, you know, Marjorie and I are talking this morning, and I'm saying you've been covering politics for a long time. If any politician you've ever covered did any one of the following things, stood up and said at a rally that I, I, if I'm elected president, I will pardon or will consider pardoning people responsible for uh, an attempt to overthrow the government that killed people, that assaulted scores of police officers. If any politician said I ripped up documents that I was that by law must be preserved because of my office. If any president was involved in a plan to seize voting machines, if any president said his vice president should have over says publicly should have overturned the election results, I would assume any politician you've ever covered would have his or her career done in thirty seconds. Does any of this stuff, all of which happened in the last thirty six hours, by the way, or forty eight hours, any of it have any impact? On the future of Donald Trump, if he's not indicted, uh, look, I think there's some evidence his sway over the entire Republican Party is uh, fading somewhat, but I don't think there's any. There's, there's no doubt at all that his sway over his hardcore base uh, still remains quite high. Uh, so I think number one, you're right, uh, Jim. It's the kind of thing that you know he has brought the fringe into the mainstream. He has brought the outrageous into the normal. Where some people don't even get excited about it anymore. They get mad at us for talking about exactly. it. Exactly. It's like enough Trump. It's enough Trump. No, no, no. He wants to come back and be president of the United States. Uh, this is not just a rearview mirror. Let's build his, you know, history for the historians. Uh, and I'll tell you what I think is just as big a story. Think about what you just went through. The former president of the United States, who is the current day leader of the Republican Party, who says he wants to be president again, says he will pardon the people who attacked our government yeah. and beat those cops, attacked our government and beat those cops, who said they were going to hang Mike Pence. Uh, he says he will pardon all those people. He essentially admitted the quiet voice out loud, saying he wanted Mike Pence to overturn exactly. the election. We've learned new details in the last 24 hours about this. Let's get the Pentagon to seize the voting machines. No, let's get the Justice Department to seize the voting machines. No, they won't do it. How about the Homeland Security Department? Uh, the level and the depth of what would have been a coup from within. He wanted to ignore democracy and hold power. How many leading Republicans have said, enough, we're done with you? We will not listen to you anymore. I will not take your money. I will not show up in an event that has your name on it. How many Republicans have said that in the last 24 to 48 hours? That that to me is as big a story that if 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 your boss did those things, your boss would be fired. If a person who worked for a publicly traded company said and did those things, that person would be a pariah. He's still the leader of the Republican Party. So, you know, John, you say that some of his support in the Republican Party is peeling off and it may be on the margins. I'm watching your station, I think last night, I don't know when it was, and your colleague Mano Raja is, is interviewing a bunch of Republican senators back from the weekend or something, and one after another, I think he's asking a pretty simple question, is what's your reaction to him saying that he'd pardon these January 6th people, uh, obviously, who attacked where you work, threatened your life, threatened the life of the vice president, you said, uh, uh, you know, pathetic answers like Josh Hawley, who, the, uh, he of the clenched fist on January 6th, uh, says something like, well, I don't really involve myself in what the president says. I don't understand why Mitch McConnell, who attempts to break free, doesn't call all of these men and women, his members in a room and say, the only way we can break the spell of this guy who is destroying our party and the country 
is if we all stand together, or at least 80% of us stand together. Why is there no collaborative effort to have Republican leaders as a group? Of course, there'll be outliers, the DeSantis's, the Abbott's, the Cruz's, whatever. Why isn't there any effort to rally uh, the troops to say enough of Donald Trump? He's too dangerous for us and our country. I think that's a key question and a framework to keep in mind as we go through this midterm election year, because I do think, you know, even Mitch McConnell, he prefers to just ignore Trump, right? Mitch McConnell would be happy if Trump ignored him and he ignored Trump. Uh, Why? Because some of his senators, some of the people he needs to be the majority leader next year, not the minority leader, um, need to get the votes of the Trump base, those people I just talked about. So if you pick a fight with Trump, uh, Trump then makes it a fight with his people. Well, Trump then runs a primary campaign against you, or Trump then says, don't vote for this person, or Trump says the election is flawed, don't vote at all. Uh, so they still live in fear of him, and they're putting power over principle. It would be nice if a lot of Republicans stood up and said, we don't care if we lose the next election. This is too important. Uh, this man is corrupt. He's a cancer on the Republican Party, and we need to excise it. And if we lose, if we have to lose an election or two to do that, it's more important. But you just you don't find many of those people. Um, Republican governors are doing it more and more. The governor of New Hampshire uh, said those pardons would be an outrage. Uh, Chris Sununu, um, Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. But but there, it's a small. The governors seem more willing. But even that's not. You're right. It would be it would be much stronger if there were a unified party to say we're done with you. Um, but they keep thinking, Jim. For seven years, they thought, oh, he's just going to fade away. Right. Yeah. This is going to pass. Yeah. The trap door is going to open or somebody's going to prosecute him. They've been saying that for seven years and it hasn't happened yet. Well, you know, we mentioned this yesterday, but why not mention it again? Susan Collins, who voted to impeach Donald Trump, is on one of the t- uh, George Stephanopoulos, yes, I think it was talk show, yeah. Sunday. And now if, she, if, if, if he were impeached, he couldn't be in office Correct. anymore. But she voted to impeach him, which to meant he couldn't him. hold office right. anymore. And, right. and then she couldn't even say that she wouldn't support him. She danced around the answer to that. But I have a question uh, for you. John King, it it probably wouldn't matter because I think I think President Trump was prescient and absolutely right when he said uh, years ago that if he shot somebody mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue, it wouldn't make any difference to his voters. So it probably won't make any difference. But Mike, what Mike Pence says, if he does talk to the, I know his chief of staff is talking to the committee. I think it's today um, down there, the January sixth committee. But you think to yourself, Mike Pence could. And I'm stealing this from somebody that was on CNN last night, a Republican woman that was talking about she used to work for Pence, said he could be a hero. You know, he could he could since he was so close to this whole thing, he could talk to the committee and and tell them the truth because he's not going to get I I don't see how he can possibly get anywhere as a presidential candidate, uh, given the climate now. He could do something heroic. He's always talking. He's a big, you know, holy guy with evangelicals and all that. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I think Mike Pence, bef- before uh, he became Donald Trump's vice president, was a principled Christian conservative, and a lot of people might not agree with his views, but that's who he was, right? And that, that's who he was, and he was consistent. Um, he became something else when he became Donald Trump's vice president. So I don't think we know the final answer to your question, which is a really good one. Uh, why wouldn't he um, do what I just talked about, put country first and say, I'm going to tell him everything I know under oath, because it's important. Uh, we'll see if that question gets answered. But I do think you see, Marjorie, uh, sort of uh, just below that on the totem pole of importance, uh, his chief of staff, yes. his chief of staff, Mark Short, uh, met for more than six hours with the committee. He did not fight the subpoena. He voluntarily, yeah, he was subpoenaed first, but then he went in without fighting it in court. Um, if Mike Pence told him to fight it, Mark Short's a loyal person, he might have gone to court to try to fight it. Right now, as we speak, Greg Jacob, who was Mike Pence's chief counsel during all of this, 
and had a lot of big fights with Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and the conservative crackpots who were trying to get Mike Pence to do things he has no right to do and had no power to do. He is right now being interviewed by the committee. So it appears we don't have, you know, we, we can't prove direct, you know, go do this. But if Pence wanted to stop this or stall this, we think he could make a stink about it. And two of his most closest aides who were in all the meetings with Mike Pence are cooperating. So in a way, they're not, yes, they're not getting it from the title, former Vice President Mike Pence, which adds a lot of gravitas and stature to the testimony. But they are getting firsthand accounts um, from very serious, experienced people who were in the room in all these meetings. Talking to John King from CNN, just to change gears before you go, John, is I'm sure you've seen the poll where that came out, I think it was yesterday from, is it Monmouth? Yeah, University of Monmouth, where 70% of Americans said it was time to accept the virus is, quote, here to stay, and we just need to get on with our lives, sort of endemic versus pandemic. I assume those kinds of numbers put huge pressure on the Biden administration and their advisors, even those who swear by the science. What's the likely reaction to this, I think, growing number of people who've said they've had enough? Uh, I think there's, you know, look, that's just a reality. Everybody's exhausted, whether you are full in on vaccines and boosters or whether you're an anti-vaxxer. I think the one thing we share is we're all exhausted after two plus years of this. I do think that represents a huge challenge to the administration, knowing the political climate out there, knowing that, you know, once significant slice of America just refuses to get vaccinated. How do you try to convince people, okay, uh, we're coming down now from Omicron. We're, we need another couple of weeks in most of the country. Uh, but we're coming down from Omicron to the point where we can have conversations about masks indoors. Uh, but the issue here, Jim, number one is the federal government needs to recommend things. Then state governments and local governments have to make the ultimate decisions because they know, you know, the governor of Massachusetts knows where's the Boston hospital situation as opposed to the Springfield hospital situation as opposed to the Worcester hospital situation. So even within a state, you may have different levels, especially in the larger states. Um, and so some of these things have to be done locally. So I do think there's a government role here for we need a reset. People are exhausted. People want to get back to some sense of normalcy. But I also think we need to have a conversation, which is what the country has been unable to have. Massachusetts is way up there in vaccination rates yeah. and all this. So it's not so much a New England problem. It's, it's largely a red state Republican problem. It's can we have a conversation about common sense and common courtesy? If normal, great. But there are some situations where you want to always have a mask in your pocket and put it on. Just put it on when you're in a crowd if the case count starts going up in your community. And don't make us think about it. Who cares? Right? Put it on. Um, do, do, if we have common sense and common courtesy, I think we can get to normal quicker. But I'm not confident given how polar – why has this become so polarized is a mystery to me except for the last 10 years of my life on every other issue. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's we're we're down the we're down the looking glass, you know, yeah. right down the rabbit hole, whatever you want shame. to call it. It's a shame. These are our, these, yeah, but it's just a, it's a shame. I mean, I've talked about this in my personal context, but these are our friends and our neighbors. We're approaching nine hundred thousand deaths in the United States. How are we numb to that? How are we numb to that? That's nuts. How are we numb to that? And hundreds of thousands of those deaths, tens of thousands at least, could have been prevented yep. if people would use common sense. It's nuts, and it's a shame. It's a crime. Glad you said it, John King. Good to speak with you. We'll talk to you Thank next you, week. John. Take care, John. Take care, guys. John King is CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, Monday through Friday at noon. We watch it every day right here in the studio. Coming up, we're going to return to Tom. To we Tom Brady. We do watch we do. every day. We're on the air live. Okay. And we're well, watching you know, we're multitasking. We're multitasking. And we're going to return to Tom Brady's retirement. Now, we do have some news. Uh, apparently, Tom Brady on Twitter after not mentioning I'm the Patriots. I'm looking at it. Please. You don't, you're not impressed? No, okay. I know John is. Well, but... okay. 
he didn't mention the Patriots in his extensive retirement announcement this morning. Well, now he's tweeted, uh, thank you, Patriots Nation, with a little red heart emoji next to it. I'm beyond grateful. Love you all. Now we'll see if moods change. We talked about Tom Brady before. Somebody wanted to put him in the ace circle of hell. I uh, couldn't stand him. They were re- glad to get rid of him. What do you think? We're going to open the lines at 877-301-8970. BPRWGBH.org is the email. And you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Tom Brady, love him, hate him, like him a little, like him a lot. That's next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And you all know that this weekend ESPN, a couple of uh, connected kinds of sports reporters, said that Tom Brady was retiring. His father, his agent, his whatever said, well, not really. But they never really denied it. And Tom Brady, in a massive Instagram set of posts this morning, said, it is true, I am leaving. And we want to know what your reaction is at 877-301-8970. Now, Marjorie is right. When we discussed this at the top of the show today, and we're returning to it now, there was, as she described to John King, a tad of hostility. (laughs) Towards was it Roger who said eighth circle, eighth circle of, of hell. hell? Roger from Marblehead, yes, exactly. He did. And Brady, I think it was the former traveling musician and comedian, was upset because uh, Bridget Moynihan he gave her one of his T-shirts, said, "I'll give it to you free <laughs> if Tom poses in it for me." Tom wouldn't do that. There was a lot of antipathy, but then on the other end of the spectrum, there were a few callers like John King who had great respect. I have to say, uh, the Patriots were and neither the Patriots nor Kraft, nor Belichick, nor the fans were mentioned in this massive, this tome this morning. Here's what happened, to be precise. Sometime, I guess it was a couple of hours ago, the Patriots put out a statement by uh, Robert Kraft, otherwise known to you as Mr. Kraft. Part of it says, words cannot describe the feelings I have for Tom Brady. I have the greatest respect for Tom personally, always will. I'm jumping around. His humility coupled with the, his drive and ambition truly made him special. I will always feel a close bond to him. I will always consider him an extension of my immediate family. And that's the thing that was retweeted by Brady, who I would say a little bit too late, too little and too late, says, you know, two lines. Thank you, Patriots Nation, with a heart. I'm grateful beyond love you all. Uh, I don't know if that's going to assuage any of the concerns of uh, – People listening to the show who will acknowledge he is probably the greatest at what he did ever, but they're still not really happy. Well, the email seems to be turning a little bit more. Oh, it is. Yes, listen to this. This is a great story from John of Pawtucket. used to be a reporter for the Attleboro Sun Chronicle. In 2002, the paper sent him to an elementary school because the Patriots receiver was supposed to show up, Mm. but the receiver messed up and didn't show. The Patriots found another player for the following Tuesday. Once again, the player's wife went into labor that morning, and he didn't show up either, and the kids were crushed two weeks in a row. The third week, the paper refused to send him a third time, but Dan Branch is sent to the school, and he shows up, and the kids are really psyched. They have a big rally in the auditorium, and uh, Branch steps on stage and tosses the football. After a moment, he says, I know we messed up the past two weeks, and so to make up for that, I've brought along a friend. Right then, Tom Brady steps out from behind the curtain. The place goes absolutely Nuts. So how about that? An elementary school in Attleboro, I assume, is because where the Attleboro Sun Chronicle is. Pretty good story, huh? Pretty good story. Now, we started today, by the way, I realized we had that incredible poem from John from Gardner, which, by the way, I believe he is still reciting. 
And the legendary Margot Howard emailed me a response. You want to hear her poem in response absolutely. to John's poem? Absolutely. Margot Howard, this absolutely. This one actually is brief as opposed to John's. Margot wrote, we love your opinions while we shoot the breeze, but we've made a new role, rule, no poems, please. So that is <laughs> the rule uh, regarding Tom Brady for the rest of the show. Let's go to Doug and Brimfield. You are uh, next, I guess. Yeah, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Well, first of all, thank you for banning John from poems. <laughs> that was Margot, actually, not us, but we'll thank her for you. Go ahead. Well, thank her as well. Hey, um, the thing is, people forget, like, Tom Brady did for the NFL what Tiger Woods did for golf. That's a good point. There may not be... There may be things you don't like about him, but you have to admit the man did some amazing things while married to Giselle. Why'd you throw in while 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 married to Giselle? It was difficult to, to leave home when Giselle was there. I oh, suppose. I see. Is, that is, your, that your is that your point, point Doug? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Doug likes yeah. that one. Yeah. 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 Well, he did. So he, yeah. Go ahead. The point I'm making: it's easy to hate somebody because they're successful, handsome, and married to a beautiful woman. Exactly. But look at what he's done <laughs> and, for the game. And worth a half a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doug, that was an excellent call. Yeah. I think you summed it up beautifully. Well, Thank you is, for the you call. Know, some people just have it all coming and going and upside and down, right? And he is. Mm-hmm. He does. And she does. And they all do. Oh, here's another poem about Tom. We just got, there once was a man from Nantucket. Oh, no, that's that's a whole. <laughs> Lauren, you're a Marblehead. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about the, the retirement, the official retirement of uh, the legendary Tom Brady. Hey, Lauren. Hello, good morning, or good afternoon. Hi. Um, so, truth be told, I don't even like football. As a matter of fact, I hate football. Ooh. And over the years, oh. I, don't, I don't have a television, and I, and I avoid the games at all costs. And all of my friends know this. I get together with my European friends during Stupid Bowl so we can go else, elsewhere and do something more fun. But I, I call because, and I can't even believe I'm making a phone call about football, how can you not, uh, even I, have developed an affinity uh, toward Tom Brady? He is a brilliant um, athlete, to he say is. the least. He is. Um, and on top of it, he's, he's seemingly a very stand-up, nice human being. And anyone that talks poorly is just envious and shame on them. No, he's probably not perfect like the rest of us, but if he steps out of line an inch, people jump all over this man. But I think he should be fully celebrated, and even me am going to miss Tom Brady, which is hard to believe, and I have friends right now that are probably dying if they hear that. I don't even know you, Lauren, and I can't believe you're calling about this either, considering you don't have a TV and you don't like football. (laughs) But, you know, talented, nice people, some think are overrated. I guess that's the only response. Lauren, that was an excellent angle on this, and thank you for sharing it with us. We appreciate it. Here's Christopher. What do you say? He says, Tom Brady is the Gwyneth Paltrow of the NFL. No, that's really, that's... (laughs) David says, if Tom Brady gets into heaven... He's so perfect, he'll look around and say, what a dump. <laughs> 877 oh, That's a good one. what's that? He's doing a takeoff on the famous Giselle line after the Patriots lost the Super Bowl. Was it to the New York Giants that he lost? they lost? To, to the Giants. Yeah, one yeah. of the two times they lost to the Giants. And yeah. she says, my husband cannot, expletive deleted, throw the ball and catch and it catch at the same it, yeah. time. Well, this is from Kathleen who says, my husband cannot, 
Explode deleted. Thank two cities and two fan bases at the same time. So that's her analysis. There you go. Rick in a car. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Hey, how you doing? I love your show, and it keeps me staying on long drives. Well, uh, thank you. Point, yeah, what is your point? My point is Tom Brady on paper appears to be the greatest quarterback of all time, but early in his career, they changed the rules of football completely. You mean the tuck the rule thing? You can't hit. You can't hit the quarterback. Oh, I see, yeah. Yeah. You can't hit the that's, that's right. Wasn't like Joe and, Namath when he lost his knees in about the third season he played. Rick, what was the thing you're saying? What are you saying? Well, I mean, I have mixed feelings about Brady. He's a great team leader. He's a great player. He's, I think he's probably the best quarterback of all time. But it's hard to compare him to like Fran Tarkinen and all the old quarterbacks that used to get hit all the time because they lost a lot of playing time because right. of injuries. Yeah, and it's it, it, their careers. Yeah, the fact that he didn't have to play through like 40 concussions really gave him an advantage. <laughs> I guess, may, who knows? Rick, thank you for the call. Didn't also, speaking of Giselle, uh, we refer to her by her first name because we're very close to her. Didn't Giselle say on a broadcast like a half dozen years ago while Brady would never answer the concussion question when people were rightly focused on the damage that that was doing and how little the NFL cared about it at the time, and now they pretend like they care about it. Didn't she say that he had suffered numerous concussions? Yes, yes. and then there was a big brouhaha, and then he had to answer whether he did or not. He was a little bit more vague. By the way, our staff just found Patriots chairman and CEO Robert Kraft. I just read it. Oh, you just read it. Okay, I I was reading the emails. I'm sorry. I read it a while ago. Yeah, that was was the thing that he retweeted. Brady retweeted with a little heart thing. So he gave one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words in response to Kraft to the Patriots nation and about a thousand words to uh, the (laughs) Bucks fans. Do with that what you choose. Judy and Hudson, you are next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Hi. Yes, hi. hi. I wanted to talk about Tom Nichols' article in The Atlantic last week. When he was on your show, Jim, he talked about superstars versus teams and that we really don't have teams anymore. He was referring it in relation to Jeopardy, how we have these super players. Yeah. And so, I mean, I can't help but admire Brady as a player, but what is it? What is a team today, and where is loyalty? Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, which I'm reading now, Wait Till Next Year, about the Brooklyn Dodgers, is exactly how I felt. I grew up in Brooklyn. When the <laughs> Dodgers left Brooklyn, that was the end. Free agents leaving the town. What, is it, what does it mean? And so I, I understand that people are in an uproar because there's really no such thing as loyalty. Judy, so, Judy, um, Judy, I can't believe I'm going to switch sides now. The guy gave two decades of his life to this team. We will never, neither we nor our children nor grandchildren will ever see a two-decade span like this. I happen to think primarily because of Brady as opposed to Belichick. I know it's a big debate not for today. You don't think he did enough for this community and this fan base? Betrayal. I I see it as a marriage. Betrayal. You have a wonderful marriage and then you go and have an affair with someone. Does that make your marriage... I love this. No, Judy, I'm not laughing at you. A lot of people okay. feel exactly like you do. He's an adulterer. That he cheated on New England. <laughs> Judy, that was a great call. Thank you much for the, uh, Listen, for this, the call. This is, from Rick, this is from Rick in the car. What's that? He better not come here to the studio, actually, to see us on Zoom, because he what? says, I have never had the honor of meeting Jim and Marjorie, but in mm. my mind, they have a striking resemblance to Tom and Giselle. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> 
meaning we're a man and a woman. That's the resemblance. That's about as far. I hate to disappoint that, you, Rick. That's about as far as, so, as it goes. I want to say oh, something. Oh, Jim is very tall. No, when I uh, I had never seen Brady other than when I was on that oh, sideline that one time. When he came to the Granite Telecommunications, is this fabulous thing every year that Baker's involved in, a lot of sports stars, where they raised millions for cancer stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Ortiz came one yeah. year. place went nuts. A lot of people have come. The year that Brady came and you see him up close... <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was a little work there. There's no question. There was a little work done, but that's secondary. This is one fine-looking one human fine being. Looking human he really being. is. Easy on the eyes. Kathleen from Hopkinton, thank you for calling. Hey, Kathleen. Welcome. Hey. Hi, guys. First hi. time on. Oh, I have to disagree with Judy. Oh, my gosh. You cannot deny Brady's talent. You cannot deny that he was a team leader. Oh, my God. And he's from the University of Michigan, where we hail from. (laughs) Holy cow. Greatest of all time. I I wish him all the best. And the naysayers, you know, jealousy, it's a bad thing. Let it go. Kathleen, that was beautifully put, too. And, by the way, speaking of teammate, I have known none of this firsthand. It's just listening to sports reporters and others that cover the team. He supposedly, as the you know the super of superstars, maybe the most recognizable current athlete in America, is that possible? I would assume he is. I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Uh, people say to the least player of the 53, I think it's 53 players. You've heard that. that over and over. That he is really, yeah. he's he's warm to, he says he know, you know, he, he reaches out to them when he's, when they come to the team. And obviously when he went to Tampa, it was the reverse. He reached out to all of his new teammates. So supposedly he's a really good teammate, which is a really good quality. And a really good. That's true. And, Kathleen, and, thanks. And really inspires teammates. Well, I should say so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's sort of like some people do in radio, I mean, for example. Exactly. Don't you think? Exactly. Yeah. But when he talks about giving it 100% to something, I mean, mm-hmm. that that that's impressive. I mean, that pe- what's impressive about that? Well, you don't give 100% to what you do? Well, well not I, you. <laughs> that's a bad example. That's a really bad example. Can I, let me rephrase it. I don't give 100% to what I do. Marjorie's actually in the studio today, not sitting home on Zoom with with an apron on. (laughs) She runs in between segments to take her cakes out of the damn oven. That's her 100% commitment. I mean, basically, that did nothing for me, that thing. That's part of his Instagram, too, when you can't do 100% anymore. I mean, he's obviously, to his credit, he cared about something and he did it. But doesn't everybody you know, most people you know, who you respect, no matter what their job is, put their heart into uh, their work? Well, I think maybe people do put their heart in the work. I'm not sure everybody puts 100% in for 22 years. I'm of course, gonna... most people we know haven't been to work in like two years. So that's <laughs> that's another that's another issue I haven't thought about very much. No, not Forgot at all. about that. Not at all. No, David... I don't focus on that no. at all, actually. Doesn't David in the car. The Thank you for calling. Hey, David. What's up? Hey, guys. Hey. So here's my here's my or four if we're talking about Q tips. Are we talking about Q tips? No, right Q tips about a month ago. <laughs> we'll get back to that in February. Oh, it is February. Go ahead, David. There you go. So anyway, I'm not from here. I've always been a Rams fan, and I was great. I was so glad to see the Rams beat the the excuse me the Buccaneers. Yep. But my thing is is that I think Brady delayed this whole thing because it's a drama thing. He just wanted to eat it up. Let it go a couple of days. And my other point is, if Gronk was still, his bro, Gronk was still playing for the Patriots, would he have thanked the Patriots in his 8,000-page, eight, 8, you know, 
retirement speech this morning. I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. I, I think that he has did a, done a disservice to all of the fans here and to, to clean it up with a, with a, with a tweet afterwards is just, it's just BS. I David, think. can I tell you something in a moment of seriousness here? Marjorie and I have treated this somewhat lightly. The only part that I am totally serious, but I agree with you is rather low rent after being here for 20 years, not mentioning Kraft, not mentioning uh, Belichick, not mentioning his former teammates, and most importantly, not mentioning the fans until he says thank you, Patriots Nation, in response to uh, Robert Kraft's uh, in, uh, post. I, I, on that, I am totally with you. It was not worthy of a pretty classic character like Brady. Thank you, David, for the call. 877-301-897. You know, the beauty of this, by the way, while we're doing this a couple times today, on the air, which we almost never do. Talk right sports radio is gonna be talking about Brady's Instagram post probably for the next seventeen years nonstop. Do you think anyone's ever gonna to get to the heart of why he chose to ignore uh, the whole Patriots twenty years of his twenty two year experience? Know. I mean the fans didn't if even if he thinks Belichick or Kraft done him wrong, the fans didn't do him wrong, right? No, gosh, the fans didn't do him wrong. You I said gosh. He, I said gosh. Wow. Sorry. Gosh. I think when uh, he, we just said earlier that when they played against, with Buccaneers, uh, played against the yep. Patriots and, yep. and Tampa year, won, yeah. um, he got he got a pretty good reception oh, yeah. at, at Gillette Stadium. There was some booing during the game, but there was a great reception for him. You know, Aaron brought up a very important point, Jim. That's right. He says he personally will not be voting for the inevitable Trump-Brady ticket in 2024. But you never know. Millions more might go for it. I don't think – I think it's more likely Giselle will run. Oh, of course, she's not – she wasn't born in the country, so she can't run for – That's right. She is from Brazil. Anything. I think she's a little bit more political and obviously a lot more progressive than he is. Would you not say? Oh, gosh. Yeah, she's, yeah. she is very – Big environmentalist, theoretically. Of course, so she lives sure in she, a house the size of Rhode Island. I'm sure so. she's had enough with the with the football, too, because I'm sure she wonders every time he goes out, is he yeah. going to get hit in the head today or get hit somewhere else and have a terrible situation? By the way, I said that school was in Alibro. I just got a letter, uh, email that, where Brady went. Oh. A surprise. Oh. From Tina, who says that he made the appearance actually at North Seekonk Elementary School because she was working that day. Wow. And he was a joy to see in person. And the kids were absolutely thrilled. Reverend Jim, you got a minute. Take it. Hi. Uh, hi, uh, Jim. You, you, you didn't listen to the, the to the classy John King who was I growing didn't. up in the room. <laughs> no, you didn't. Okay. You, you know, you, you, you're getting a stick going here uh, on, on Brady, but you know, when he left the Patriots, mm. he gave a classy goodbye. He did. Uh, to, to everybody from Kraft, to Belichick, to the fans, to his teammates. Everything was done beautifully and uh, I think that he probably closed that chapter, and now he's he's leaving the Bucks, and and so he's doing it with them, and and so uh, you know, I look, he was the greatest who ever lived. Uh, he's on the Mount Rushmore of of, of American sports for me, and uh, he's he's um, you know, uh, I, look, twenty eight to three, you know, coming back, John Madden says, take a knee. He comes back in the, in the Super Bowl and, and brings it down for a field goal. I mean, you know, so many great memories. I wish him a great life, 
and a long and fulfilling life. Reverend, I, that's I why you're a reverend, and that's why I'm a lowly talk show host. Thank you, <laughs> Reverend. That was beautiful. That, that is, was. Every word was true, including yeah. that John King was the adult in the room a few minutes ago. Reverend Jim, reverend Jim thank we you do, absolutely. for the call. On an up note, I'm glad, we, I'm glad just we ended on an up note, and I didn't read any more of these disparaging emails. No, because that would have been bad. <laughs> By the way, we're going to talk about Tom Brady every day for three hours for the next month. So if you didn't get in now, don't worry about it. We'll get in okay. tomorrow, the next day, or the next day, or the next day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank Sorry you. we didn't get to all the calls and emails. You can keep up with us 24-7 the way of our podcast called Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, uh, our personal finance columnist, Michelle Singletary, is going to join us just in time for tax season. And she's got a, she's brilliant on advice about money. Restaurateur Joanne Chang, owner Great. of Flower Bakery and the restaurant in the South End, Miles and Chang. Myers and Chang. Myers too. and Chang. Whoops, she's going to be with us Miles tomorrow. Miles is her former husband, her not former husband. Christopher Sorry. Myers. Myers Sorry. and Chang. Yes. And our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan. We want to thank our crew, Jimmy Bologna, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, and Rebecca Tauber, our engineer, John the Claw Parker. Additional production support is provided by TK, what is on TV, Jim? A couple of guys. Kevin Hayden is the, I guess, technically the interim district attorney for Suffolk County. He was appointed by Governor Baker after Rachel Rollins, who will be with us Monday, by the way. Rachel Rollins uh, was uh, elevated to U.S. attorney by Joe Biden in the United States Senate. So Kevin Hayden will join me. And Bill Galvin, who announced the other day that he is running for re-election. I think for an eighth term, is it? As Secretary of State, and you know he's being challenged by Tanisha Sullivan, who is the head of the Boston NAACP. So Secretary Galvin will be there, and D.A. Hayden. That's tonight at 7 o'clock on Greater Boston. So like a very good show, Jim. I have a lot of questions for both of them about Brady and Kraft <laughs> and Belichick. And, and Giselle. And Giselle, of course. <laughs> that bath where she gave birth and the whole thing. After right. she made the pancakes. I'm Jim Brown. <laughs> This is unbelievable. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow. Have a great day. Bye.